This is Chris Shelton, your host. Thank you very much for inviting us into your home again this week. And as you can see by us, I am joined this week again by John P. Capitalist. Hi, John. Hey, how you doing, everybody? Hey. Good to be back, Chris. Yes, thanks for coming back. And you uh, and I have had a few discussions now, and we have talked about Scientology. We have talked about, you know, the, we, we did a podcast recently about potential end times for Scientology and maybe not so potential end times and uh, some of the factors concerned with this. And I have always been fascinated by your, um, your research-driven and evidence-based points of view on these topics. And so while, you know, I am into the psychology and sociology of these things, you take a bit of a more hard-nosed, real-world, you know, financial, economic, socioeconomic view of this stuff. And by your training and background and profession, you are qualified to do so. So it's always fun having these discussions with you. So again, uh, thanks for coming back to the show. Absolutely. And, uh, and I think, you know, Scientology has been fascinating to me for, you know, 10 or 12 years. But of late, I've been starting to look at other groups and starting to look at, you know, of course, as you suggest, through the lens of economics, what these various groups can do and what can economics uh, and organizational theory teach us about where cults are likely to go in the future. And so, as you recall, we, we talked about sovereign citizens maybe three and change years ago, um, you know, before the pandemic, which I think is a very important data point. And while, uh, and I, as, as prepping for this, I watched that uh, podcast again the other day, um, and it's held up pretty well. But I think there's more layers that have been added to the puzzle so that what we were talking about then is still true, but there's also new stuff that's, that's arisen. And uh, a lot of how it's, you know, where it's going has really been influenced by what's happened to people during the pandemic. Um, and I think, that's, uh, I think that's why it's really worth you know, coming back and, uh, and revisiting the topic. Absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, you have been keeping your eye on a couple of different groups around in the Western hemisphere, I guess you could say. And we're gonna get into some of the details of these groups and, and what they're about. And I wanted to kind of intro this a little bit with you know, these are groups that we, you know, I have tended on my channel to go more in the direction of, um, I don't know how to put it, you know, tent pole cults, like the bigger ones, you know, the kind of ones mm -hmm. that have a lot of name recognition or have something about them that they're in the current news cycle or they're somehow being brought up in that way. And these ones are actually a little bit flying, you know, not totally under the radar. Clearly, there is media reporting on these groups. But the ones we're going to talk about today are more of, I think, a reflection as we as we'll talk about that internet model that I have referred to or talked about from mm -hmm. time to time. And this is a really new thing in terms of cult studies or the or the field of how extremist high control authoritarian groups, you know, propagate, disseminate. Uh, grow, in other words, get their messages out. And we're seeing now with the rise of, you know, the internet now being part of our daily lives and us sort of being in this, uh, what did Elon Musk call a sort of symbiotic relationship with our phones mm -hmm. and this kind of thing. I mean, I can't go anywhere without my phone now. If I do, I feel like I'm unattached from the world. 
And I know I'm far from the only one that way. We have an entire generation or two now of people who are being raised where they have no concept of what it is to live in a world without an internet. Mm-hmm. And it used to be that the world was not quite as connected as quickly as it is now. And so we see uh, some interesting, I guess I'll say phenomenon, some interesting you know, results of that in terms of how cult leaders, narcissists, uh, authoritarians, whatever label you want to put on people who really don't have everybody else's best interests in mind, mm-hmm. um, how these people will uh, get messaging out there and how they will attract a following from yep. all over geographical areas because the internet is far-reaching and grow these little weird groups and sometimes not so little. And sometimes uh, dangerously, not so little. So on that happy note, I guess we will uh, dive into this this week. So what do you have for us, John? Okay, um, so so you're absolutely right about the internet. And I would say more accurately, social media enabling formation of these kinds of groups. So other types of internet, you know, using internet to transact business for an existing cult is you know, somewhat well understood, you know, Scientology completely misjudged it, but they are doing some internet-based courses now. Yeah, it's a little behind the, the curve, but, you know, they're they're doing this. I, and I assume better run organizations like Landmark and so forth have, have been working on internet-based ways of, you know, keeping in touch with their customers. Um, so I, I haven't, I don't follow Landmark particularly, but, uh, um, you know, I'm sure that, that people have, you know, older organizations have been really adapting to the internet, uh, maybe not social media, but um, but there's, you know, I think we want to talk about these these groups as only existing because of social media. They couldn't have existed with the models that they do unless social media as it exists today uh, was around. That's right. So, um, so what, what I want to do is I want to look at three separate groups that have arisen maybe in the last 18 months or so. And um, I want to look at how they arose what they believe, how that belief, uh, that that dogma, or that content has evolved over time, and how the in real life aspects driven by that content have evolved and seem likely to evolve in the future. Um, so the three groups are first the Queen of Canada. So there's a woman um, named Romana Didulo, who's a Philippine immigrant, late 50s, early 60s, who uh, proclaimed herself the Queen of Canada, apparently. Uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, was deposed somehow, and uh, nobody seems no nobody else really seems to be aware of this. And so she's actually built up something of a following. Now, for this uh, discussion, I am going to step out of character a little bit. For those of you who read uh, the comments that I write on Tony Ortega's blog, it's been a running joke for a number of years that I pretend uh, that Canada is merely a quaint rural region of upstate New York, located somewhere north of Buffalo. Uh, the capital of Toronto is a place, or the capital of Canada is a place called Toronto. Uh, mostly uh, lumberjacks and uh, fur trappers and all sorts of other bizarre notions. And really that's been more of, uh, it's been intended as a lampoon on uh, ignorant Americans who don't know anything about our largest uh, trading partner. Um, I've, I've actually, this started years ago when I was investing in Canadian companies. I'd go up there and I'd visit the CFOs. And, you know, I would be prepared with an understanding of, you know, Canadian uh, research and development tax law that, you know, subsidizes uh, innovation, et cetera, et cetera. And they were always surprised when I actually had some idea about this stuff, because I, I heard stories about 
These are smart, educated Harvard MBA type people who go to Canada and don't really seem aware that Canada is a separate country with its own tax laws and its own incentive structure for companies to do good things. And, and so, you know, I, I've seen this astonishing ignorance. So, so that's all a front. We're going to set that aside. And I actually do know things about Canada, but I reserve the right to, to slip back into that sort of persona uh, when this conversation's done. Um, so, so she has been the queen of Canada. She's uh, uh, issuing royal decrees. And we'll talk about what those decrees are and how her followers are uh, clinging to those and getting themselves in some real trouble and how they're starting to push back against uh, you know, the, the government who is legitimately ignoring these royal decrees. Um, and, and there is, you know, from uh, an unlikely assortment of people, you know, these are relatively benign sorts of housewives and, you know, senior citizens and so forth who are actually casually threatening uh, violence against uh, uh, anybody that uh, doesn't follow the queen. Um, the second group we're going to look at, the group itself doesn't really have a name, but the guy in charge is called Negative 48. And um, this is the one that's been hanging around in Dallas last year. They promised that JFK Jr. was going to uh, reappear on November 2nd and was going to restore Trump to power. Um, and to be clear, this group is a direct offshoot of QAnon. Yeah. Um, the Queen Romana, the Queen of Canada, is also a uh, you know relatively minor QAnon influencer until ah. she hit on this current thing in uh, early 21. Uh, so, so she also has the 20, uh, she also has the QAnon, uh, backs, backstory and source of, uh, source of followers. Interesting. Uh, the, third, the third group is, uh, a little bit more classic sovereign citizen, and it's called the rise of the Moors. And, um, the Moors are a sovereign citizen group that's almost exclusively black. And, uh, we'll talk more about the history of that group. Um, uh, but the, the rise of the Moors is a particular faction that's really broken in a very different direction than most of the rest of the Moorish sovereign citizen crowd um, and has gotten very, very close to significant armed violence. Um, and we'll look at why that might be. And uh, we'll look at how their, um, you know, real flirtation with, you know, significant violent action uh, may be a, a, a harbinger of things to come from other groups. So, um, so I think, you know, we're, we're, we're really looking at groups here that are the opposite end of the spectrum from Scientology, the Moonies, and these other established groups. Right? Scientology has been around for almost 70 years. The Moonies, similarly. Transcendental Meditation, 50, 60 years. Um, you know, Landmark, 50 years. You know, so all of these groups have been around for a long time. And the hallmark of all of them is that they're run like a business mm -hmm. um, because they were all formed in a time where you needed personal contact, you needed an office location, um, recruiting was done personally and so forth. And, uh, you know, as you're suggesting, and as I agree completely, social media has inverted all of that. And now you don't need an office, you don't need anything other than a GoFundMe um, to have uh, the donations that people kick in um, land in your bank account. Exactly. But, but then again, um, and, and so I think that, uh, but then again, this new model has some limitations that the older groups uh, uh, don't have. So right. if I might, let me just comment quickly also as well that while the while the genesis of these groups may be online, what is kind of interesting and um, concerning, I'm not going to say terrifying, but I am going to say concerning, 
is that they have become or are be, are moving to in real life model from an online genesis, you could say, or source, mm -hmm. right? They start yeah. online. QAnon was, you know, coming straight out of 4chan and 8kun and, and then starts having real life uh, demonstrations and protests. And then, then ultimately January mm -hmm. 6th, they were part of that. These groups as well, you know, start with this online component, but then move into the real world. And that's uh, certainly with negative 48 and this and these uh, these uh, I, I think all three of these groups were seeing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so I think, you know, we've got social media as a catalyst for this particular type of group. Yeah. But social media has been in its current form for something on the order of 10 years. Twitter, some of the other instant messaging um, uh, groups. Um, and, uh, you know, Facebook, YouTube, all of this stuff has been relatively well set. Um, but why now? And I think the second piece of this is really a function of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you're actually, and I've, I've read articles, and I don't have data on this, but I think we'll be able to see data in the emerging in the next year or two that allows us to look back and see that this has actually happened, is that I think um, the pandemic is really, really going to be hard on certain types of churches that have really depended on uh, a community to bind people very tightly to the organization. And so um, I think this is going to hurt particularly the more evangelical um, and, uh, you know, not necessarily the mainstreams, which have been struggling for other, you know, uh, so this is not, the pandemic's not going to really hammer the Episcopalians, uh, but it is going to potentially hammer the Baptists um, and uh, the mega churches and so forth. Mm -hmm. And what, what I think people are doing is, you know that that a lot of people really go to the go to church for the community. You know they're lonely, or they just want to be part of a community. Maybe they're not lonely, uh, but they like you know they value the 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 entertainment value of the religious service as much as they do the moral uh, and and spiritual uplifting. But they also value the socials and the activities for the kids and all this other stuff. And when you're cut off from that, um, you know, as as in the pandemic. Um, it's very difficult. And I know a lot of churches have struggled. A lot of pastors have seen real burnout, but, but the, you know, people have started to socialize online and a lot of them end up going down this rabbit hole of QAnon. And it ends up, um, I've, I've read articles from various sources that a lot of people, a lot of ministers are like, what is this QAnon shit that people are, are becoming stridently militant about this. And it's actually, you know, taking donations away people are trying you know and it's taking people out of the pews and they're turning into full-time QAnon adherents when they are stuck at home um and so i think that um it's an alternative community and i think one of the attractions of the community is that there's a sense of mission so QAnon in particular um hey you know it's like my life is empty and meaningless and i'm stuck at home in this stupid pandemic and my job is falling apart and i'm not getting the work hours but now I'm sitting here behind my keyboard, keyboard and I am battling uh, satanic, pedophile, baby-eating Democrats. Um, so my life has some meaning, even though I'm all I'm doing is typing comments that agree with other people who talk about how evil those, you know, imaginary baby-eating, adrenochrome harvesting Democrats are. Yeah. Um, but it gives my life some meaning, and. You know, it's just, uh, and, and so that's that's really cool. It also, if I might, it also adds elements of of hope, of future, mm -hmm. 
of yeah. being able to do something about it, of the feeling of being able to do something about it, of participating with others in something that's going to, in their minds, change those evils of the world and make themselves out to be the good guys. Yep. And this is, of course, uh, you know, something that is part and parcel of every cult experience. And so this is no different, but it's also very, very important part of this whole thing is yeah. these are, uh, to a great degree, people on a mission. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, and, and I, I just, uh, I think it's interesting because QAnon is starting to splinter, right? The yes. fact that there have been no, you know, Q drops in two years. Um, well, there you know, are some new ones. Yeah, and but it's not, but, but it's pretty clear who Q is at this point. Exactly, and there's, and it's very interesting how Q, as as the QAnon community, has literally splintered in such a way that when the new Q drops came down, there were people who were immediately, nah, 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 we don't even need Q anymore. And mm -hmm. believe me, of all the things I thought I would see in that group, that's actually not something I predicted. That is, that was a fascinating uh, thing to happen, and that's and that's where these groups are emerging from. Well, the thing, you know, the thing is that, um, you know, Watkins has been shitposting just this random, bizarre stuff. And, you know, he never made an attempt to, you know, build any sort of organization. And so it's been wide open for, you know, the interpreters and influencers to grab at, you know, the, the ability to make money. Yeah. Um, and by the way, I, I, uh, I know somebody who, uh, now dead, but um, I've known somebody for many, many years who actually had acute clearance. Right. And um, actual Department of Energy confidential the level clearance. Sinwitties, Hughes, the whole, the whole ladder uh, of everything. Very, very senior aerospace guy uh, who worked on nuclear weapons and had all of the clearances as a senior executive in charge of programs uh, to do this stuff. And you know, he would, in general and, you know, appropriately general terms, talk about the fact that the restrictions on what he knew were actually extremely onerous and difficult within just nuclear weapons. And the idea, you know, I, I you know, he'd been in ill health for a while and, you know, I hadn't spoken to him for, you know, since uh, QAnon uh, started up. So I never really directly talked to him about, you know, to get a chuckle out of this Q nonsense but but the notion that somebody with a doe clearance could show up at cia headquarters in langley uh you know on the on the parkway there and just uh decide to go in and hang out and talk about what the russians are up to the idea that that's that that's even remotely possible you know it would be the end of his clearance in a nanosecond you exactly. know that to be cleared for it at, at his level and after decades of being a trustworthy keeper of secrets at his level to be cleared for anything that he wasn't currently cleared for was an extraordinarily difficult process. Right. So the notion that Q as these idiots envision it could actually exist, that somebody who had access to quote everything is just so ludicrous that it's, it's not even good fiction. It's the sort of thing that an 11 year old boy reading young adult spy stories might believe, but Anybody who has any actual connection with the, uh, uh, you know, military industrial complex uh, knows just what a load of crap this is. Uh, exactly. If, so, I, if I might, I would say also that 
Because I, I tend to take any opportunity I can to throw pot shots in this general direction, especially the more that I learn about it, that we are we we are not well enough warned, I suppose, by our young youthful education on the fact that almost every form of entertainment that we in TV, movies, you know, podcasts, whatever, are complete fiction. You know, law shows, police procedurals, uh, spy movies, all of this stuff. They are so grossly inadequately unrealistic that, and unfortunately, that tends to be the experience of a lot of people as to how they learn about or think these worlds or, or these areas operate. And, and it's just not even remotely close to what is represented on TV. That's entertainment. But people take that as though it's real. And it's, mm -hmm. and it's, a, it's a gross fallacy on the part of way too many people that they fall into that way of thinking and so become more easily susceptible to thinking something like, oh, because you have a top secret clearance, that means you have a universal clearance and you can see anything anywhere. And these kind of crazy ideas that just don't have anything to do with reality. Yeah, no, absolutely true. And yeah, uh, yeah it's, uh, you know, the gullibility um, of large numbers of people for that reason and so many others is just uh, is just extraordinary. Yeah, it's really bad. And and, uh, and so I think, uh, you know, you've got, but what's interesting is, you know, that these groups are all splintering out of other groups. So uh, the Queen of Canada, negative 48, they're splintering off of QAnon. The rise of the Moors is splintering off of regular Moors. Um, and, and I think they're gonna, so we're in a period where these giant umbrella conspiracies that gained momentum a couple of years ago um, you know, the anti-vax crowd is losing a lot of momentum. The money that, that was flowing into anti-vax groups now that COVID is sort of, well, not as deadly, but still sort of over. It's still out there. In fact, I'm just getting over a case myself. It was a bad cold, but, you know, eminently, I was not concerned about dying uh, particularly. Right. Um, but, um, but I think that, uh, you know, the anti-vax movement, was really rolling up a lot of followers and that's fragmenting out and you know people who were surfing that for you know to create these groups i think that's ending QAnon is fragmenting um and so we're going to see a lot of little groups emerging very quickly and then probably disappearing just as quickly mm -hmm. for the next couple of years before something else happens to change uh the direction of this yeah so yeah queen of canada my goodness All right so so this is uh, this is a pretty funny one because you know like a lot of these things. Well, let's step back. Okay, let me let me say this a little differently. So if we look at Scientology, you know when you get into it and you really study the doctrine, it's dreck. Mm. It can't possibly work. Yep. The the quote only hope for mankind is such a enormous complex morass of baroque complexity and contradictions. It couldn't possibly be that this stuff actually would be the only way for humankind to develop superpowers. Yeah. It's basically crap layered on top of crap, but what got people in was that some of it was somewhat plausible. You read Dianetics mm -hmm. and it's kind of maybe sort of plausible if you're like a college student mm -hmm. and you don't really know much about this sort of thing. Um, 
when you get in, you study it, and you realize that a lot of this was cap reaction therapy that Young and his cronies had rejected a half century earlier, including a predecessor of the E-meter, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you realize that, you know, this was stuff that, that, you know, had been left behind a long time ago, and it doesn't particularly work. Now, of course, when I say that, I always get nasty people saying, but I got tons of wins from auditing. And, you know, the thing is, it's more likely that a small number of people get wins from auditing than that zero people do. And you have a nice, uh, concerned, compassionate listener as you're going through all of this Baroque nonsense. Some people are going to get value out of that. Yep. You know, it's there's there's a a human and a listener in the loop. That's right. It's a it's a well of endless possibility when you have good communication going between people as yep. to the, the feels that a person can get from that. And when you add, mm-hmm. I'll have to say, you know, in the auditing process that the, the trans induction and the covert hypnotism that occurs there, which has to be commented on as part of the process, then that's where it is so much easier to induce that awe euphoria state that people are chasing in Scientology, and they can assign all kinds of interpretations to it, but at the end of the day, it's really about the feels, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not hard to produce the feels in people. So mm-hmm. that's, you know, kind of the way that that gets by with these faulty, crazy, I love the way you put it, Baroque layer upon layer of direct. It's perfect because that's exactly what it is, but people will believe anything if it's going to give them more of the feels. But the yeah. thing, you know, to back up to, to the, you know, to the, to, the, to the point is that there's some degree of plausibility on the way in right. that can overcome your skepticism. Right. You have to be quite ignorant and quite gullible to take some of the stuff that any of these groups we're talking about tonight, um, that, that any of the stuff that they believe and believe that this really makes any sense at all. That's right. And so the thing about Q actually having access to all sorts of things is just is not even by far the most ludicrous thing that we'll talk about tonight. Um, so, so Queen Romana uh, declared herself the Queen of Canada early in 21, and she was a mildly successful QAnon interpreter that had a few tens of thousands of followers, mostly on Telegram. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so she declared herself the Queen of Canada and really took on COVID anti, uh, you know, uh, trying to eliminate masking um, you know, as many other people were doing at that point, you know, right, if you look at early 21, it was the winter, a lot of people were dying, a lot of people were getting sick, a lot of, you know, fairly draconian uh, shutdowns uh, of businesses, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, and so what she did is she wrote up these, quote, royal decrees and these cease and desist letters that her followers downloaded and printed out. And they started walking into government offices uh, and businesses throughout Canada uh, and threatening them with uh, criminal prosecution for enforcing the legitimate mask mandates that were in effect. And, uh, you know, this was, this was seen as a threat. And these people were not, you know, uh, militia-type, you know, bearded gun, well, not, not so much guns in Canada, but, you know, the sort that you would expect uh, to be, you know, heavy on the violence. These are little old ladies to a great extent. These are, you know, suburban housewives. These are people... And they're casually, you know, uh, walking in and, you know, threatening uh, lengthy jail terms and potentially even worse, um, you know. And so you, if you go back to the quote about the banality of evil, you know, this is very much, you know, that sort of thing. Um, right. 
And so this is not, you know, you're, this is not people with a propensity of violence. It's just, they're just casually just threatening, you know, threatening lengthy, you know, decades long life in prison for, you know, enforcing, for asking you to wear something over your mouth so you don't infect other people. Right. Um, now, of course, earlier this year, as it looked like COVID was waning, um, the mission had to shift away from COVID. Uh, and so it had to evolve. Um, particularly because up in Canada, you had that trucker's convoy going into Ottawa and jamming things up. Uh, and that was a much more publicized uh, thing about, um, uh, you know, anti-mask. And so she was really in the shadow of that. So she had to evolve. And so the mechanism became more these royal decrees, um, uh, you know, and, and so basically the route that she took is free stuff. And so a lot of the royal decrees were, uh, one of them was, a $1.5 trillion investment in uh, infrastructure development in Canada. Now, of course, 1.5 trillion Canadian dollars equals about 300 American dollars at the current exchange rate. But um, be that as it may, um, you know, she wants $150 billion to go into the economy of the Yukon Territory, which uh, I, I didn't bother to look it up, but I'm willing to bet is somewhat larger than the GDP of the, uh, the Yukon Territory. So the notion that you could actually put that money to work is, is laughable. Right. Um, it's not even remotely close to the reality. It's just complete nonsense. Um, other royal decrees, um, let's see. Um, the, the one that's really causing the most trouble is that all utilities are free, gas, electric, water, et cetera. And, um, okay. So, so, other, to, so it, to be clear, she's issuing policies or orders or decrees to her followers that they believe that they don't have to pay their utilities anymore. Mm -hmm. Now, when this, she started throwing these out in, you know, like February or April, um, you know, as you would expect, they, the rules are that people who don't pay over the course of the winter don't get turned off in February and right. freeze to death. Um, they get turned off in June. So this works for a while. And, uh, but what's happening is if you look at, you know, there are people who monitor the Telegram channel and post this sort of stuff on Twitter. Every day, there's a few more people that have gotten turned off. They've spent that money on something else. They're on fixed incomes uh, and they can't pay the two or $3,000 that, uh, that it's gonna take to get their utilities turned back on. And you know, this is, you know, these senior citizens are, are um, you know, have really screwed themselves massively into the ground. Um, and, you know, the utility companies are, are starting to, you know, see enough of this that they know what's going on. They train their people. And basically, if you come in and you start talking about royal decrees, they're like, nope, it doesn't work that way. And then they accelerate the cutoff process, um, send people out to the house. And, you know, it's uh, but they've but they've had people calling up the call centers, threatening the representatives by name, threatening them with their houses, going to the office and threatening people. So they're now trespassing people. Uh, and so now these little old ladies are subject to arrest if they set foot on the utility company's property or if they call again, you know, for harassment. Um, and this is a really, really bad situation, you know, when this is happening, you know, uh, repeatedly. Um, other decrees uh, in the free stuff vein are uh, that she has rolled back real estate price, housing prices to the 1955 levels. That's 1955. Uh, so that's 70 years ago. Um, and so a really nice house in a swanky area of Toronto will now cost about $4.17 US. Um, you know, the, 
current exchange rates. And, and it's just, you know, it's, it's completely insane. Uh, mortgages are canceled. Uh, Canadian farmers uh, can use all the water they want for free. Um, let's see, uh, Canadian cities must uh, operate community gardens to feed their entire population. You get 30, day, 30 years in jail if you're a news medium that publishes fake news, according to her lights, all sorts of crazy stuff. And so these royal decrees are just, you know, essentially whatever random thing that she sees that people are worried about, she issues a royal decree. And uh, But people are using this to get themselves into real financial trouble. And of course, what she does is when people post, uh, you know, messages to her on Telegram, she just completely ignores them. She doesn't respond. She doesn't get drawn into it because, you know, that would really, uh, uh, you know, that would really blow things up. So, you know, this is a woman who basically, I don't know that much about her. I don't think that people have really done a deep dive into her past, but she does seem to have had some, you know, skeevy marginal businesses where she stiffed a lot of creditors in the past. She was living in a really ratty, rundown, uh, you know, tenement in a bad neighborhood in Victoria, BC. And uh, so the, but she hadn't really had a money, uh, uh, money making model until very recently. And so now what she's doing is she's going on tour of her, of her dominion. Uh, she's getting her followers to kick in for uh, a few RVs that she's renting and now ultimately purchasing. So she can, and she's now driving around Canada and hosting meet and greet sessions with, uh, with her imperial presence. Um, and she's now got followers who all have matching uh, outfits, uh, kind of reminiscent of the Heaven's Gate cult. Um, and, and they are basically, you know, and of course she's working them to death. A lot of them have quit and told stories about how awful she is. Uh, but, uh, but basically that's what she's doing now is starting to, starting to suck in donations. Um, wow. And, and so, you know, I think that the, um, you know, the, the propensity for violence, you know, in these kinds of casual threats against the utility companies and so forth, I think is now being taken very seriously by the authorities. There was a post recently on, uh, on Telegram from one of her followers who said that she has been trying to get the police in her town to intercede with the utility company for her because the utility company has now uh, placed her as subject to arrest if she shows up or tries to call them. So, which is, mm. I think, sort of not getting the point, um, really, that uh, her bad actions have gotten her to this, uh, to this place. But, you know, when you have enough people that are casually threatening violence, at some point, somebody's going to do something. That's right. And so a relatively recent development with, uh, with her uh, followers is that they are now running clinics on how to do a, quote, citizen's arrest. And uh, so this is, you know, a fantasy that somehow that you can just arrest somebody as a citizen and haul them off to the police station. And, you know, that's a, you know, talk about old movie tropes and old, old uh, TV fiction tropes that, you know, like you were talking about earlier, uh, that doesn't have any bearing in, in actual reality. And they've actually named a specific date and a specific city where they're going to affect one of these uh, sometime in, uh, this is August uh, 2022. Um, we'll see if it actually happens, but that would be, you know, really over the line. Even if nobody gets hurt physically, the idea of, of you know essentially kidnapping somebody is is really uh, you know getting very very close to a, a line. Absolutely. Uh, well, they're already breaking the law in terms of uh, you know, but at a, at such a light level, nobody's particularly interested in throwing people in jail. But they start doing this stuff, and that's going to change real fast. Yes, it is. Even in Canada now, she's yeah. already been. Uh, you, you can uh, you can insert all the jokes about uh, socialized Canadian medicine 
um, because uh, they did call her in for a mental health competency exam a while ago, uh, and they didn't hold her, um, even though I'm sure they think that she's, she's I, I think she's pretty clinical. Um, she's pretty delusional. She's pretty clinical. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but they didn't hold her, but they're certainly, she is up on the radar scope. There are often police in the background observing these meet and greet events, uh, not right in their face, but they're there. Um, but I think, you know, it's morphing again, um, I think very rapidly right now. There's two things that have come up in the last maybe month or two. One is that she's resurrecting a lot of this uh, new age nonsense called ascended masters. Mm. And um, this mm. tends to be, you know, a bunch of, you know, uh, look, look it up. It's not. I don't well, I'll, I'll, I'll actually put a link here um, in the show notes or description to the, the video here to my interviews with Joe Zimhart. Who's, okay. a, who's an expert on that and actually has talked in detail about Madame Blavatsky and 19th century mysticism and the occult, which is where, which was a springboard for some of this ascended master's lore. And this is a very, very, very old idea, very old. And this is regurgitated, resuscitated from time to time by various cults and twisted and turned. Hubbard did it. Uh, lots of other new age spiritual groups uh, do it, and and it's you know it's, it has to do with this business of ascended masters. It's it's uh, you know you are at a higher state of existence or knowledge or ability, and you promise to have your followers be able to rise to that occasion themselves by following you and doing what you say. Mm -hmm. And it's quite a powerful carrot for people who have felt powerless their entire lives. And they tend to glom onto this kind of thing. So, what's old is new and brought back again. Yeah, I I, I had a very interesting series of discussions, and and I haven't been given permission to say who it is, but somebody that you would know, mm -hmm. and that's very prominent ex Scientologist, uh, is uh, the child of a mother who was very heavily into this stuff, yep. and um, and it really messed her up, and she has said that it made her susceptible to. Scientology, and you know, but yeah. it really just you know caught, it was a horrifically traumatic part of her childhood. Mm. Um, so it's uh, so it's you know, and and it has been I think kind of gone away. But she, you know, uh, the Queen of Canada is really bringing this back, and so she's using the I am verbiage and a lot of the buzzwords from that. Um, and and I think what that does, uh, even though the Ascended Master stuff, um, you know, I think that one of the biggest groups was the Church Universal and Triumphant, which has kind of fallen apart. Uh, but that was very right-wing survivalist uh, expression. So I think, you know, some of the Ascended Master stuff is is not, you know, far left, loopy, hippy, dippy, stereotypical New Age. There's a lot of paranoia and such. Uh, but uh, but it does broaden the appeal versus sitting there and, uh, you know, if you're if you're at all a Democrat, QAnon is against you because that's the enemy, the satanic baby-eating, adrenochrome harvesting, Democratic pedophiles, and um, and so you know QAnon's appeal is somewhat limited to a particular part of the political spectrum, whereas Ascended Masters, at least ostensibly, is a much broader appeal. So that's you right because you can morph away, it to any ideology you want. Exactly, and so you know you're you're not uh, you know as time goes on, the people whose lives revolve around uh, the election was stolen from Trump two years ago. It's getting a little harder to kind of keep people at the level of intensity to stay engaged with that. 
And so, you know, these groups have had to evolve to somewhat less political. The anti-vax stuff was absolutely perfect for that because it united a lot of people across the political spectrum with a common fear. Um, and so, so she's doing this ascended master stuff. Um, and I, you know, I don't know quite how it's going to shake out, but it's very interesting to see how fast that she's putting all this together. I don't know if she was into it before and is now just sort of bringing it into the mix of doctrine uh, or of uh, whatever. I wouldn't even call it doctrine because this is all just like shit that's thrown against the wall and they just are seeing, you know, these, these leaders are seeing what sticks. Um, but it's, I, I, but it, I think is, uh, you know, it's, I think it's going to become an increasing part of the mix, um, but we'll see how far that, that goes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but just as second- a, just as a quick comment on that, in case anybody out there is kind of wondering uh, in terms of the cult milieu or the cult modeling or how this works, this is, this is par for the course. There's nothing unusual in having things thrown against the wall to see what sticks. Hubbard did it mm-hmm. all through the 1950s. And it wasn't until, the, until 10, 12 years into Scientology that things started becoming standardized. Mm-hmm. And up until then, you had all kinds of things thrown in there, that, and, and some of which survived and some of which didn't. And so this is, this is the same kind of phenomenon we see, we, we see here. Yeah, and so, and so it's almost like you know, she's got the audience, and now she's got to have the doctrine to sell to them. That's Whereas, right. at the very least... Hubbard wrote Dianetics before he went out and started to collect followers and turn it into what it is today. Um, and but but here you get the audience and now you got to have something to keep them keep them hooked. And so it's a big scramble to get this stuff rounded up. So so stealing from the past, no matter how ludicrous, is is certainly a, a unifying thread for the the groups we're talking about and more besides. Uh, but the the second major development that's really started to happen in the last few weeks is that she's trying to export this uh, kingdom idea to the United States. Mm-hmm. So she found some guy, and uh, I don't think people have really been able to find out much about him, but one of her followers, she has named the commander-in-chief of the United States. And by the way, she claims that her legitimacy, speaking of commanders-in-chief, comes from uh, the United States government, which is kind of interesting from, you know, when you consider that she's the, king, uh, the queen of Canada. Um, so, you know, and it, uh, she seems to be a little unclear on the concept that apparently the United States military endorses her. Um, uh, Guantanamo Bay is available for her to put prisoners of people who cross her in. Uh, last time I checked, that was a U.S. Navy operation. Um, and really the Canadians, uh, you know, has steered clear of any involvement with Guantanamo, right. uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, so there's some very ludicrous uh, beliefs about, uh, you know, the her legitimacy deriving from the U.S. So it's natural that she's expanding there. And what she's actually doing is creating an organization. So this this commander-in-chief guy, uh, they're also recruiting state uh, leaders, you know, to to set up organizations. I don't think there's any actual template for setting up organizations, but she's handing this out as plums to some of her followers to say, Mm. okay, well, you're now now the, the leader of Arkansas. And uh, you're going to spread my kingdom uh, in into the U.S. Um, and so there's actually an organization of sorts uh, filling in. Um, so this is going to be really interesting to see if she's able to morph to actually run an organization. Yeah. Um, now we've seen pretend government organizations from sovereign citizens in the United States. Probably the best uh, example I know of is one from uh, uh, run by a lady out of Alaska named Anna Reisinger. 
uh, little old lady who uh, um, is one of these pretend judge, pretend grand jury types. And she now has a thing called the American States Assembly. And um, and basically, uh, you know, they have to pretend uh, to have their legislatures and their their law, you know, lawmakers and all this, according to uh, uh, Anna's rules. And of course, if you don't pretend according to her, her rules, she kicks you out of the pretend government. Um, so, you know, there's uh, it'll be very interesting when some of these other pretend government groups uh, start to pick at um, the Queen of Canada usurping their uh, livelihoods. And it'll be very interesting to see, you know, the hissing and spitting. Uh, you know, I think, by the way, Life of Brian is is really becoming a documentary for, right? for these times. Right. I tell so you, it feels see... like if you take Life of Brian and Idiocracy and sort of put it, you know, it's like, yep. what are Absolutely. we talking about with these things? Yeah. And I mean, I mean, you know, all you have to do is just say, you know, the Judean people's front versus the people's front of Judea. Right. And uh, and, and you get a sense of, of, of what's likely to go on with these things. So, so that's one particularly, uh, you know, raucous bit of insanity. Right. Wow. Well, it certainly is. And, you know, of course, with the police kind of watching now and with, you know, them incur in the incursion, I guess you could say, into the United States, um, you know, I don't know that the United States bureaucracies are going to act any faster than Canada has on this. They're a little slow to roll. But as we've seen with the sovereign citizen movement, once they do become aware of the tricks and, and what these people are up to, they have very, very short tolerance for it. Yeah, no, I you think, um, you know, it is, it is an open switch what the U.S. is going to do here. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't been able to find much substantiation, but I have seen comments um, by the people that follow her closely that says that she has been trying to get into the U.S., but apparently they're on to her. And so she has not been able to get in on her own passport. Uh, and she may have potentially tried to use other uh, passports, maybe perhaps some followers or some other mm. attempt to circumvent. But but apparently she is not able to get into the U.S. Uh, her followers have also been identified. Um, you know, the police are probably... You know, they, they've had con, you know police contacts. Some of the drivers have been ticketed. So I think the identities of most of her key you know followers that are traveling with her are known. And I think that uh, uh, the U.S. has basically got enough of her number that they're going to keep her out for a while. Um, it may or may not uh, you know stand for the long term. But I think that's the I, very quietly. I think that's the strategy. I think you know they. I think they're better at monitoring social media perhaps than most people think. Um, and I'm sure she's up on the radar scope, especially with all these, you know. Oh, before, very much so. She... Yeah. I mean, because when you're when you're literally attacking the sovereignty of a country directly, that's called treason. And, you know, they do take a rather dim view of that post in the post 9-11 world. Yeah, I just I, I just think they're I, I think she's up on the radar scope. And I think, um, yeah. you know, they're just they're just hoping if they keep her out, you know, it's not going to be the, their problem. Um, right. You know, and. You know that that the Canadians, I think, are perhaps uh, uh, going to reach if there's any violence. I think the Canadians are going to really come clamping down pretty hard, right? Uh, more so than is typical. I think after the the uh, truckers' convoy in Ottawa, I think the Canadian government's patience is a, is a bit uh, has worn a bit thin for this sort of garbage. Yeah, I agree. Okay, and so then negative uh, forty eight. That is a bizarre name. Who, what? That's, yeah. This is some guy, right? Michael Protzman? Yep. 
Yeah. So I have no idea what the genesis of the name is. And, you know, I'm going to use that term or I'm going to use Michael Protzman as the, the name because the group doesn't really have a name. Um, but but he's another QAnon guy. He had more followers, I think, than the Queen of Canada. Um, and his shtick in the QAnon world, they got in those followers, was really the use of uh, Gematria or Gematria. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but you know, the Bible code, the numerology stuff. Oh, um, right. Cause he's got this whole system with a equals one B equals two and so on. And that's, and they use that to connect dots in some bizarre conspiracy way. Right. And so, yeah. you know, this goes back, you know, this is almost medieval or yeah. maybe even older in its, uh, in its incarnation. And, uh, you know, there was a book maybe 20 or 30 years ago called the Bible code that, you know, maybe not the best term resurrected this, uh, this nonsense. Uh, and that if you somehow assign these magical values to various letters of the Hebrew alphabet and somehow randomly picked uh, the right letters in the, you know, the right places, you would get messages about the future. And, um, you know, the brilliance of that system is you can literally, I mean, it's not even like I, I like, like you have to strain. You can find any message you want anywhere you want if you mm -hmm. just massage those numbers. Absolutely. So. You know, I think it's, uh, I don't know that it necessarily takes particular skill to come up with, you know, a way to run this scam. Um, this guy is like a contractor, a demolition contractor from Washington State. So, you know, probably not a math genius that can look at uh, a page of text and somehow compute the numbers in his head. So I don't know how, you know, if you were going to try to run this scam on people, how you would do it. But, you know, it's obvious that, you know, exactly as you say, if you cherry pick it, you know, uh, there's an old saying in economics, right? Uh, if you torture the data long enough, it will ultimately confess. <laughs> and uh, that's, well, that's very accurate. Yeah. And and so, um, you know, I think that there's there's an element of that. But I think ultimately, one of the you know we we've talked before about, uh, especially like in our Scientology podcast a couple of weeks ago, uh, we talked about how cults sell certainty. And this numerology stuff is perhaps the ultimate kind of certainty, right? That, that events of today were foreshadowed at some point in the past in these sacred writings. And the, the fact, the idea that, you know, the tribulations and the suffering of today are ultimately going to be worth it because they were so important that they were foreseen, you know, some long period of time ago. That's right. And, and so... You know, the, the, the idea is, you know, that's a very powerful concept. You know, and, and when you think about it, you think about the fact that the U.S. has been through a kind of trauma on both sides of the political spectrum for the last five years. The anti-Trump people have been driven nuts by this stuff, and the pro-Trump people have been driven nuts for the last two years by this fantasy that the election was stolen. Yep. And, and so there's been this enormous national trauma. And then you have inflation, which is something now happening uh, for the last two years and likely to continue. Uh, that hasn't been a factor in the econ uh, in the economy for 40 years. Um, you know, not that many people remember the 70s, um, but inflation became benign in the early 80s and has remained so, you know, ever since. And that's gonna that's gonna uh, not be the case for for a while. Mm. Um, you have the situation in Ukraine, which very possibly could erupt into a major conflict. Um, you know, if any. Uh, any number of things go wrong, and and this very much could. Mm -hmm. uh, and you have the potential for a major conflict in China. And while I believe that uh, the U.S. would ultimately and and its allies would ultimately prevail in both of those, um, 
it's still a very, very, you know, tense uh, time geopolitically. And, yeah. you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of concern about the, the future, more so than there maybe was 20 years ago or even five years ago. Well, so, I'm, I'm just going to add on top of that, the other layer of climate change and, and the climate science you know, which is uh, the articles that come out even up to today on my newsfeed are very alarmist on that topic and are very yep. concerning to an awful lot of people. Yeah, we talk about climate deniers, but there's an awful lot of people out there who are not climate deniers who are very concerned about this. Well, I just yeah. read today, you know, in England, they've had this, this heat wave and the first time in recorded history, the source for the River Thames has run dry. I don't know exactly how what that means, you know, downstream over the next couple of weeks, but you know, there's some unprecedented stuff going on, and it seems to be happening. Uh, you know, it's not just well this theoretical thing like the Greenland ice caps are shrinking right. or glaciers or you know whatever. It's stuff that you know really is affecting uh, uh, you know agricultural production. And and by the way, you know, if you look at uh, the fact that uh, Ukraine is a major source of grain to uh, the Middle East and a bunch of other places. And both Ukraine and Russia are major source exporters of fertilizer. Um, you have some very legitimate concerns about massive global famine. We're talking right. hundreds of millions of people, maybe billion or more people, at risk within the next twelve months from food insecurity uh, on a on a scale that we haven't seen in a very long time. So you know, really, you can you know, so really, given the the level of sort of background strain, I mean, I've, I've been following a lot of geopolitics at work, and I got to tell you, I am way more stressed since the Ukraine thing started. And I've been looking at all kinds of stuff mm -hmm. and scenarios for all kinds of things. I'm not a geopolitical guy, but I got sucked into this, uh, unfortunately. Um, I'm a tech guy. I'm mm -hmm. not a geopolitics guy. and uh, But I got sucked into this for a whole bunch of, right. bunch of reasons. But I'm not, I didn't want to be, but I, I have to be. And uh, I got to tell you, my background stress level, you know, is just off the freaking charts. I've had more sleepless nights the last six months than I have in a while. And I'm generally a reasonably balanced individual, you know, yeah. and, um, you know, reasonably centered, but, but it's just like, yeah. Yeah. I hear um, you. I, I wish I could say that I've, uh, been able to just blow it all off, but I have not, I have been yep. just as concerned and, and, uh, and it's concerning. And the point being, of course, that, you know, if you and I are legit concerned, uh, because we are reasoned individuals who pay attention to the data, you got a whole bunch of people who don't know anything about the data, don't pay attention, but are, you know, riled up and yep. fall for this nonsense as the reason why it's happening or what they can do about it. And that's that, yep. that always happens historically during times of civil or social tumult. And, yeah, you know. Yep. And so what's, you know, what's Protzman's essential shtick here is that JFK will return and right. that uh, he will be reincarnated and he will return Trump to power. Now, of course, Never mind the fact that uh, JFK was the ultimate Democrat um, and, uh, you know, the likelihood that he's somehow going to be reincarnated as a Republican and still be JFK seems a bit surprising to be mildly uh, uh, skeptical. And, uh, you know, this was supposed to happen on November 2nd of last year. It didn't. He moved the date about 300, uh, you know, some large number of times. And, of course, it's the classic cognitive dissonance trap that goes back to Festinger in the 50s That's with a right. UFO cult in Chicago, all that sort of crap. So very classic cognitive dissonance trap. Um, and, you know, so so there were like a couple thousand people that came to Dallas to, you know, to witness this on his say-so. 
And of course, a lot of them, you know, after the first disappointment rolled out and went back to their lives. Uh, but he's got maybe a hundred hardcore followers. He's still got all of these people on his social media, you know, chat, uh, you know, telegram channel or whatever it is, is his primary vector. Um, a lot of those people are sending him money, but a lot of the people that are following him around and basically what he's doing with the time, you know, is, uh, when he's, you know, aside from the doctrine, but what people are doing with their days that are following him is they basically are schlepping around the country to Trump rallies, mm -hmm. um, waiting for JFK to be revealed, um, as their reincarnation, uh, for Trump to be revealed as the reincarnation of JFK. Right. And, uh, which again is just insane. But, and they're um, supposed to connect up with JFK Jr. as well, who didn't really die in that plane crash and is going to partner up with uh, dad again or something. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. The fact, I, I mean, mean the, the details don't matter. So somebody who's yeah. more familiar in the, in the comments, you know, may, you know, it's like, yeah, okay. I may have gotten this slightly wrong, but basically, you know, this fusion of JFK Jr. Sr. reincarnated uh, as Trump, restoring Trump to power, all this sort of nonsense is is just ludicrous. Yeah. But um, but the you know some of the followers that the, these people have cut themselves off from their family and they've run up astronomical credit card bills. I saw one article about a woman who you know married to a doctor, you know prosperous family, and she's looted the uh, the family you know fortune to the tune of a couple hundred grand that she's uh, given him for hotel bills for all these people that are schlepping around the country. Um, and so there are a lot of people that have had to cut their spouses off from the, the credit cards and leave them potentially indigent because, you know, they're driving the family into bankruptcy. They've they've disconnected from their families. Uh, I don't want to talk to you. This is the truth. And, you know, these people have literally gone, uh, you know, around the bend. Um, and, and speaking of going around the bend, to return to the numerology part for a second, you know, what essentially numerology is, is an example of a, a phenomenon called apophenia. And that is the recognition of patterns where patterns don't really exist. Exactly. And this is a very natural and it's very you know common. Everybody does it, right? You look at a cloud and you see a dog or you see a boat or you see a something in the cloud. That's pretty, that's pretty much universal. Um, you know, it's, it's a survival characteristic, right? You hear a noise in the grass and you look for a pattern that that may be a predator. Right. You know, as opposed to going, oh, that sounds musical and and pleasant, and then the leopard pounces, um, right? So we still have that that wired in, but there's you know an immense spectrum of this, and so you know you have just you know this sort of random pattern matching that you know of overgeneralizing these patterns, and this doesn't come from the frontal lobes, by the way. It does. It comes from you know sort of lower down in the what I would call the monkey brain rather than the frontal lobes, which are the part that makes us human, um, you know, and this is. This kind of you know, there's a there's a very good model in terms of the different parts of the brain and their roles in some of the the books that you could read about PTSD and how trauma works and bypasses the normal logic and reasoning. And so this is very much wired at a reflex level. And then sometimes it it comes into places where it affects other people. So um, this is where you get uh, somebody who sees the face of Jesus in a slice of toast, and then all the people in the neighborhood come in and worship or whatever. You see, you get some ability to affect people. And then, you know, at the extreme end, um, one of the key markers of schizophrenia is high degree of, of this characteristic of seeing, you know, patterns where none exist. And, right. you know, when you think about schizophrenia, um, about half a percent of the population uh, in the U.S., and a little bit less globally, but 
about half a percent in the U.S. So 1.6 or 1.7 million people are schizophrenics, whether diagnosed or not. That's a pretty significant number. Mm-hmm. But because this is a smooth continuum, there's a lot of people that are somewhat schizophrenic adjacent, that this apophenia is very, very strong. And so you're going to see a lot of people who are perhaps marginal with mental health getting hooked into this numerology stuff because it really satisfies that urge, that that overactive urge to, to find patterns. And, and it really, that to a certain extent, I think, you know, with all these people that were puzzling about these Q drops and, you know, analyzing all this crap back in the early days of Q, um, I think that's, you know, so, so you really are appealing to people who are, you know, potentially borderline mentally ill. And that's why I think, you know, I, I don't know, and I'm going to be very speculative here, but I think that, you know, people who are close to being mentally ill can, in fact, be kicked over the edge. And it can, in fact, you know, this obsessively looking for patterns can trigger oh, yeah. schizophrenia oh, yeah. and not just the other way around. Oh, no, I'll, I'll absolutely double down on that. And the reason I'll say that, and I'll put, I'll put some, some, some beef there, is, um, is you have social factors. Uh, gr- group peer pressure is everything to your beliefs, mm-hmm. right? So that's why these groups are, are become like these self-generating kind of things, is, is reinforcing, I should say. And the other factors there are sleep deprivation, food deprivation, mm-hmm. trauma, stress, anxiety right we use these words to describe mental states where people are in a kind of permanent or semi-permanent fight flight fight you know fright mode whatever uh where they're just not rationally calmly thinking things through and if you dial that that pattern making that connect dots that don't connect up to 11 like we do with cults with these added layers of 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 trouble then this is where you get this phenomena from. Yeah. So this is not even that conjectural. It fits completely in with everything we talk about. Yeah, I mean, I have, you know, I, I, I'm, it, it makes sense. And I think it's a reasonable bet. I haven't seen enough data. I haven't gone looking for it one way or uh, to confirm or disconfirm, yeah. but, you know, looking for fMRI type, you know, biochemical data to see that because you, know, you can see differences in the brains of schizophrenics and how they process certain things. Right. And so I haven't seen fMRI data to see when a longitudinally somebody has started doing this and all of a sudden they, their neurochemistry cleans. So that's why I, I'm treating it as a speculative comment, Fair enough. even though I think it's a reasonable working assumption. I just, that's my normal sort of mode of caution. Of course. Um, so, so let's keep, you know, I'm, I'm going to just knock through a couple of uh, Crossman's uh, bizarre beliefs. Um, like many cult leaders, when they start to get attention, especially in person, he's now thinking that he may be the reincarnation of Jesus. Um, you know, that's uh, pretty common. And it's, uh, I think, characteristic of how cults actually harm the cult leaders. Not that I'm feeling sorry for him, you know, but, but uh, you know, Hubbard was kind of a mess after all of these years of adoration from his fans. I think he was probably relieved in some sense to go into seclusion, to hide from the, the long arm of the law, I think he was probably um, somewhat better off for not having all these people after him all the time, you know, to try to, you know, like like all of the people chasing Brian around in Life of Brian, waving sandals. That's right. That's right. You know, and, it's, and, and it, yeah, it creates its own kind of, uh, it's, it's a whole other level of problems at the cult leader level. Yeah. yeah. Um, other other uh, juicy tidbits um, that uh, drinking hydrogen peroxide uh, is the best cure for COVID. So mm. this is like talk about going to eleven. That's way beyond ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. 
Uh, drinking hydrogen peroxide is a really bad idea. It's up there, mm -hmm. maybe even worse than drinking your own urine. Not quite as bad as drinking bleach like some of these other guys have been talking about, but it's up there. Um, uh, he's had some uh, suicidal or apocalyptic rhetoric, like you have to die to learn the truth. That's right. a little concerning. That's sort of in and out. I don't think that's a major theme, but it's been, you know, some comments before. Um, uh, one of the, you know, as he, as, as he kind of, you know, the JFK thing is, is I think wearing thin, uh, you know, he now says, well, you know, Trump looks a little rumpled at some of these appearances because the high tech mask that prevents him from being revealed as JFK, he's intentionally letting that slip. And, you know, the revelation of Trump as the reincarnation of JFK or JFK Jr. is imminent. Um, let's see. Um, uh, another one is he believes that uh, at the last Trump rally that he was at in the front row, that as Trump walked off stage, that Trump looked at him and said, thank you, Michael. And he's now announcing that Trump will thank him by name for the immense contributions he's making to the world in his next rally. That'll work out. Um, and then uh, uh, another recent development is that, uh, like the Queen of Canada, Protsman is very big on med beds. So if you haven't heard of med beds, this is a magical Star Trek-like thing. Apparently, a lot of people think that these are uh, invented by aliens and that they are being given to the people of Earth. Uh, you lie on a med bed for some brief period of time and it cures cancer, regrows missing, missing limbs, uh, cures Alzheimer's. Any disease, any chronic condition that you have, the med bed will instantly take it away. Uh, as an aside, not related to Protsman, I'm seeing several people now starting up websites uh, to take $400 to get a reservation for your med bed treatment, um, which is really, I think, the worst kind of crime. And you, you see these very sad uh, you know, requests to Queen Romana about where, when are the med beds going to be available? I'm, you know, my sister is dying of cancer. Wow. And, you know, it's that was really, uh, that reminds me of that movie Elysium, that Matt Damon, Jodie Foster movie. They had a med bed in that movie. It's a key plot okay. point. The rich people had it. Yeah. And well, people, you, know, you know, Star Trek's, uh, yeah. you know, Dr. Dr. McCoy, you know, right. goes back to Dr. McCoy. And, you know, I don't I don't want to know what Dr. McCoy and Nurse Chapel did in their med bed, <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, and so it's, yeah. uh, you know, again, but that's a very new age kind of fantasy you know, with yeah. benevolent space aliens out there uh, taking care of us. Now, of course, um, you know, the idea of withholding a med bed, if humans had the ability to function as gatekeepers, is, is ludicrous. Um, I looked this up. I, I wrote about this on Tony Ortega's blog a while ago. Um, so globally, the world spends about 12% of GDP or about, 12 about maybe $12 trillion a year on medical care. The U.S. is a slightly higher percentage because our healthcare system is so inefficient. Um, and so if I had a warehouse full of med beds, um, what I would do instead of holding them back for some unspecified future thing to happen, kind of like David Miscavige is holding back OT9 and 10, uh -huh, um, I would go to the government and say, since med beds will put all of the healthcare people in your industry out of business, how about you pay me the same amount of your GDP for med beds that I will rent you and so all of a sudden I own a $12 trillion a year business and I am, you know, at reasonable stock market valuation multiples, the richest person that ever lived. And I am that way overnight. Right. So I would have a very powerful incentive to bring med beds to people because the amount of money 
you know, and I could even charge a premium to what people are currently spending. So it's like, okay, give me 20% of GDP for med beds because now everybody will live for a long time and they could be taxpayers for longer and they will spend money and pump up the economy for many more years. Right. This is this is really the whole Raiders of the Lost Ark, hide it in some deep warehouse somewhere, government conspiratorial. They had a cure for cancer from the 1950s and they've been hiding it. It's this really bizarre paranoid kind of thinking well yeah and it's what or it's or it's something that's that's like almost a repentance fantasy right that if we're somehow good enough and that we're somehow virtuous enough on axes that aren't explained to us but if we just act virtuous enough then this paradise on earth will be uh uh awarded to us right. and uh and and everything will be better mm-hmm. and and so there's this is very new age magical thinking and and so you know, Protzman is a very big believer in that. Um, so, you know, so I think that's um, you know just more and more just random crap that all of a sudden the synapse fires and it's like that's added to the stack of doctrine. Um, and you know, but I think it's the med beds are particularly significant because again, it's uh, it's broadening beyond just. So if you're anti-Trump, now there's a hook to get you in. And I don't think that these guys, these guys are pretty marginal intellectually. I don't think these guys are sitting there thinking, ah, I need a way to broaden my market appeal, right? Top down MBA strategic thinking type stuff. I don't think they're doing that. I think they just sort of intuitively know, you know, that they just, they could just sort of randomly intuitively say, well, that's going to, that's a good piece of doctrine to, to add to the mix. Uh, but I don't think they're, they're approaching it, you know, the way I would sort of, if I were trying to start a cult and I would, you know, apply my Wall Street wisdom and say, we need to have the broadest addressable market. That's right. That's right. I think you'll find, um, if we do ever get into the details of these things, I think you're going to find that a lot of these ideas and appendages and things that added, that add to the mythology or the mix come from the followers. Mm -hmm. You know, they have conversations. I mean, Hubbard came up with a, a, a good chunk, but far far from all of Scientology. Mm-hmm. Tons yeah. of people, hundreds of people, if not thousands, contributed substantially to the Scientology cosmology, techniques, processes, all of it. But all of it has Hubbard's byline on it, right? It's all Hubbard, mm-hmm. but well, it wasn't. But, but it's like, and it's not just the quote, the tech, it's the organizational structure. Right? Yeah. So there were a lot of people yeah. um, that were demanding ethics to have the other people that were undermining Scientology punished so that they could, you know, suppress their own doubts. That's right. Um, so I think one of the best examples uh, in a microcosm of how that evolved, of how, you know, the, the members started contributing to their own entrapment is that that legendary story from the 60s called the third wave about that experiment in a high school in Palo Alto, California. Oh, yeah. I've been meaning to do a show on that. Yeah. Yeah, and and so this is absolutely mandatory reading to go back and look at the experiment uh, yes. and, and look at the the stories. There are some relatively shorter treatments, and there are some documentaries and some longer treatments, interviews with some of the kids in there. But the, uh, a, the spontaneous authoritarian cult emerged in a week. That's right, in a, a high week. School. And what was scary, and what really finally called uh, caused the teacher to pull the plug is that the kids were starting to come up with ways to punish other kids, to punish the police and punish themselves. And so they were contributing essentially to their own enslavement. And, and that's a, right. you know, that's a, a truly, um, 
truly scary phenomenon. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right that I'm sure a lot of this stuff comes from is is bubbling up from the the followers, whether yeah. it's the people actually with him or people on Telegram or right. his other reading of his quote competitors on Telegram. Um, and so there's a lot of ferment uh, that's going on there. And it, and in fact, there's so much ferment that there are now splinter groups from negative 48. Uh, there are two or three that have some longevity and some size of their own, and they're all running around filing restraining orders against each other for all sorts of people's front of Judea versus Judean people's front type exactly. reasons. Exactly, exactly. Um, but, uh, but it gets pretty vicious, and I think, um, you know, this one is, is concerning, you know, right? So we talk about the potential for violence. Um, this one is concerning because, um, you know, this, this looks, you know, uh, the, the comments about, uh, you know, that you have to die in order to, you know, to see the truth and, and some of this other stuff and the potential for violence among these, you know, these different splinter groups. Um, maybe not as great as the sort of banal violence that uh, Queen Romana is talking about uh, in the first example here and not certainly not even remotely close to the level of violence potential from the ones we're going to talk about. Uh, in a few minutes, um, but uh, but this is still you know this is still fairly concerning you know as as I think there's more of a predilection for violence now casually um, around you know when some of these promises become unfulfilled. Um, well, know, desperation levels get higher and people get lots more anxious and on edge. Yep. That's right. Exactly. That's right. And it needs to be commented on. I, I do need to insert here just to, just to, again, reinforce what we're talking about here, that, 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 you know, this is why I talk about cults being a codependent relationship between the leader and the followers. Very much so. Right? It's not just the leader abusing all the followers. That's very much part of the model. But the followers are actively participating in this, rationalizing all of it. And enabling every single piece of it. And that's a, that's a hard pill to swallow for some people because, because it's true that there's victimization and abuse and nonsense. And I'm certainly not talking about children here when I'm talking about enabling the cult leader. But when I talk about the adult membership, people who should absolutely know better giving over all authority to these people, mm -hmm. that's an enabling relationship. And they're, they're responsible for that, too. Yeah, we got to look now, hard at that, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, the other thing about um, the other thing that, you know, sort of completes a vicious cycle with the cults is the cults also define the leaders. And, you know, that, mm -hmm. that um, you know, you didn't necessarily start out to have a cult. And then, you know, people are looking to you as this perfect guru. And, you know, you know who you are inside. You know, you're a sham. You know, you're not that sacred person right. and then you start you know becoming more and more erratic to try to you know keep up the illusion so that they don't all go away and you end up you, you end up being kind of a mess yourself that's and, right that's right um, as, as i said before not that i'm sorry for cult leaders but it uh but that ultimately feeds back into the organization with the you know as the leader decompensates so too does the organization become more extreme trying to keep up the illusion and, and, and so forth. Exactly, exactly. And the other, the other point I'll put in here is, um, you know, we see the levels of, of nonsense here, the illogical reasoning, the, the motivated reasoning, the, the cognitive dissonance, all the, all the labels. This is why I say you're not going to argue somebody out of this, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's Scientology, negative 48, whatever. They're, they're, they're deep in. 
Mm-hmm. And and that's and and it's that emotional attachment, that commitment. You know, it's it. They're all in. So mm-hmm. that's why if you're outside looking in on this, you know, don't think you're going to go have some, you know, conversation and it's all going to get resolved. It doesn't. It, it definitely doesn't work that way. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And and I think that the denouement, you know, for example, the Scientology, you get sucked into the Sea Org, you spend, you know, large numbers of years in. And while some people who get out of Scientology after that kind of treatment will go cult hopping and end up in some other group, yeah. um, I think a lot of people are going to be, you know, so they're, they're going to be avoiding any contact with anything else that could be remotely like that. But given that this stuff is a much shorter cycle time between the, the rise of the group and the positive, you know, community feeling before it starts to all turn to shit. Um, you're going to see a lot of cycles of cult hopping from some of these people. Yes. Um, some yes. of them may pull out, you know, before they get really totally invested. But when these groups who are going to have a much shorter life than Scientology or the Moonies uh, start to implode, you know, these people are going to go back to the well of social media and they're going to find some other group um, in, you know, to a much higher degree than perhaps uh, uh, than we've seen with cult hopping before. Yeah, Exactly. And it's and I and I don't and I hope I didn't get across there, you know, in my last point on this, you know, especially with what you just said about call hopping, because I, I think you're absolutely right um, that there's nothing you can do. I'm just saying that, you know, it's not a simple Simon solution here. This, these are not reasonable people. Yeah, you can't sort you know. of give them the scientific truth and expect the four brains because, you know, as we talked about, this is happening down at the monkey brain level. Yep. Yeah. And. And, you know, the forebrain is not functioning when you're in, when you're stuck in the monkey brain, whether it's a traumatic response or this kind of, you know, burgeoning mental illness. Um, That's right. And so, yeah, it's, you're absolutely right. Um, I don't know what the answer is, but. Uh, uh, it's unfortunately uh, complicated. Yeah. Yeah. So social, yeah. that's why, you know, from a social perspective or from a, from a, from a, country or state level or county level, you know, the solutions do not involve individual interventions on each member. It's, well, we got to just control and corral these people because the job of individually dealing with the psychoses or irrationality or delusions or whatever you want to call it or whatever you're having to deal with on a person by person level, it's complicated, right? So we have to exert social control first and then get into, okay, now let's pick up each person if we can even do that and have the resources for it. And frankly, our society isn't really structured that way. Yeah. Now, you know, I think what, um, and this is not a great solution, but, you know, the propensity of these groups increasingly to move toward violence essentially provides pathway at tremendous cost, indeed, in terms of the victims of this violence, but it provides a catalyst for the, uh, uh, law enforcement to roll these people up more quickly than than perhaps in the past. Yes. And, you know, they don't have time to create an organizational structure like Scientology that allows them to operate with impunity. They don't have the money uh, that Scientology does. Um, and, you know, there's a clear and present danger to public safety, physical safety, that would justify, you know, coming in and rolling them up as opposed to just being a bunch of kooks chanting on corner, you know, in street That's corners right. and soliciting money. Um, so, you know, given the overall concern about extremist violence in this country, the increasing staffing, um, you know, law enforcement to deal with that, um, that provides a pathway. And as I say, it's not a hope, but it's because it comes at such a cost, but 
that is a potential that is going to allow, you know, the groups that do turn violent, or at least the individuals that turn violent to get rolled up. And I think that some of these groups, you know, that's enough of a catalyst um, that that wakes people up. So, you know, we talked three years ago about the Colorado sovereign citizen pretend grand jury crowd uh, that got rolled up uh, after they started putting liens on the properties of uh, government officials that they felt had wronged them. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're all now serving decades long jail sentences. Um, And, you know, once they started actually putting these people in jail, all of the marginal followers basically disappeared. Right. And the whole the whole thing just went away. Right. And so I think, you know, once, uh, you know, to use the phrase, you know, when shit gets real, you know, a lot of people are going to get flushed out of this. There's still going to be some true believers. You know, this happened with the Nexium sex cult in upstate New York when Keith Raniere, the founder, got arrested in 2018 in Mexico. Uh, the organization didn't have a lot of people on the payroll. Um, and so the organization folded almost immediately. There are still a couple of dozen hardcore believers out there that are still trying to get uh, Ranieri uh, sprung on appeal, not likely to be successful. So there's a couple of hardcore believers, but the whole thing got rolled up pretty quickly once shit got real. That's right. And, and one of the things, and I'm going to be sad to say this, but I, I, I don't think it's a biased statement. I mean, you, you know how I feel about organized religion, but the, the, the law tends to, you know, these groups we're talking about are not religious groups. They don't have religious protections. And so it's a lot easier to see, and unfortunately a lot easier to roll them up than we see with religious groups who are, for example, automatically granted tax exemption in the United States unless you can Mm -hmm. make a case otherwise. So, you know, this is also one of the things about these groups we're talking about is these are non-religious cults. Yeah, and, you know, I think these, uh, let's, you know, let's circle back on this in this sort of conclusion. Let's talk about the rise of the Moors. And then let's circle back and talk about the economics of, you know, what are these people in business for? Right. And and is it even a business or is it just a random cash grab? And, you know, Scientology is a business that throws off a lot of money, but it throws off more money because it's a business. And this is all just casual, random stuff. Um, And so we'll talk about that's. That's an important contrast between older groups and, and this this wave of stuff that's arising. All right, so let's talk about our third group. This has less in common uh, with uh, the Queen of Canada and with negative uh, forty eight Michael Crossman, uh, but it is an emerging trend that that does have you know when we dig into it some uh, some common threads, and uh, so I think it's worth studying. Mm-hmm. And this is a militia group called the Rise of the Moors, and this is a, a splinter off of kind of more mainstream. Moorish sovereign citizens. So the Moorish sovereign citizen ideology borrows a lot from other sovereign citizen groups, but it's almost exclusively black, uh, you know, African-American members. Uh, And the unifying doctrine or, you know, the key doctrine is that uh, the Moors or the black North Africans were the original inhabitants of North America. And because of the 1786 Treaty of Friendship with Morocco and the Barbary pirates, they are exempted from U.S. laws. So that's their magic entree into the world of not having to have car insurance and so forth. Got it. So um, so there's actually um, a ton of videos of people, uh, you know, of sovereign citizens in general getting pulled over for bogus license plates and bogus driver's licenses and no insurance and getting their windows broken and getting yanked out of their cars and getting tased and et cetera. But there are plenty of, um, you know, Moorish sovereign citizens with some of these clever license plates 
Um, and, and if you look at the artwork, you follow some of this on Twitter, you, you know, some of the people that, that, um, that follow these, you know, some of the academics that follow these guys, there are some pretty, uh, artistic, uh, efforts for license plates and fake IDs and, and whatnot. Um, and, uh, I think one of the things that delights me the most is that they now are increasingly putting out their pseudo legal gibberish in fake old English spelling, uh, wow. which is a relatively recent development. Um, and, and so there's a lot to, there's a lot to chuckle about, um, yeah. you know, with the Moors in general, but there are some darker elements. Um, so, and, and we're still talking about in general, Moorish sovereign citizens. One of the things that some Moorish groups have done is they have started squatting in and attempting to steal houses by filing fake paperwork, uh, fake transfers of title and so forth. Um, so they'll often break into a, a house that's for sale. Uh, that's empty, they'll change the locks and they'll just set up camp. Um, and then they'll file bogus paperwork uh, to own it. And, and you know, it's surprising. You think you can't just walk in and file this paperwork. You actually, in a lot of places, you can. When you file a transfer of title, it's presumed valid. Um, so, you, you know, there's no way, you know, there's no real check. You could just say, you know, this is, no, that's my house now. And, and make up some bogus paperwork. And then unrolling all of that, and then actually getting people out once they're physically in a dwelling is actually surprisingly difficult in a lot of places. Um, it's a wonder that, uh, in, you know, in some cases, these people show up with paperwork at an inhabited dwelling, push their way in and, you know, physically throw the, uh, the owners out. And there have been stories of that. Um, so this seems the, these guys seem to be more aggressive than other sovereign groups about, you know, boosting you know, real estate. Wow. Um, it's so audacious. It's it so is. out there. It's so inconceivable. And that is bizarrely how some of these over-the-top personalities, dare I say Trump and on down, get away with this. Is It's just so audacious. It assaults your sense of civility in society. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is that they've discovered that it's surprisingly hard to undo so that they, you know, while I think people are starting to come down much harder on these, you know, especially the squatters in vacant houses, it's like if they just get the guy out, you know, so that they can, you know, sell the house, you know, the, 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 the homeowner, especially if it's a commercial real estate operator, you know, it's just going to be like, just get this done. They're not going to want to necessarily press charges. So in the past, maybe it's been, you know, just kind of like you get a free house for a while until they get around to throwing you out and it's that kind of a scam. But, you know, I think that they're now starting to push some some serious jail time for these people. And, you know, you are seeing them, them get sentenced. So it's a, it is a pretty audacious and, you know, pretty, pretty huge crime. Yeah. Um, and, you know, especially when they're busting into an inhabited house. And it's really hard to, you know, it takes months sometimes to, to go through the process. You can't just, the cops don't just sit there, come in, you know, send in a SWAT team and throw these guys back out. It's a, it's, it's harder than it seems. Right. So that's kind of a moderately dangerous thing. And the fact that some of them haven't gotten shot by homeowners, uh, you know, is potentially, especially in, you know, states that are more uh, gun friendly, uh, is perhaps remarkable. But but those guys have nothing until you get to the rise of the Moors. So the rise of the Moors is a group out of Providence, Rhode Island, and they, you know, are relatively small and they made a name for themselves in July of 2021. When they were going uh, as a militia group, they were going up to Maine, um, you know, which is a Maine is a very rural state. There's, uh, you know, there's a lot of empty land. There's, uh, you know, the population density is the lowest in the eastern half of the U.S. And uh, 
Um, so there are places in Maine that are very remote. Um, and uh, so they had some land apparently, and they were going up there to shoot guns and do quote training as a militia group. Um, so the way that they got, uh, you know, came to attention is that in uh, north of Boston, in the rural area on the way up I-95, I uh, in the middle of the night, they were stopped multiple SUVs by the side of the road, um, you know, with their flashers on, and they were filling up uh, gas in their cars from gas cans. So a, you know, local PD guy stops to see if he can render assistance, and he is met with 11 people in tactical gear and um, multiple sidearms carrying automatic weapons uh, standing there, you know, in the middle of the night, standing there holding guns. Now, in Massachusetts, that's a really bad idea. Mm. Massachusetts has some of the strictest gun control laws, but here's this cop surrounded by armed black men, and uh, he calls for reinforcements, and they send a whole shitload of reinforcements. Um, these guys all scatter into the woods. Uh, there's video of one of the leaders saying, okay, you go over there, take up a sniper position. So this is looking like it's heading towards a very potential shot, uh, shootout. You know, that's, that this is going to be, you know, World War III in rural Massachusetts in the middle of the night. And uh, eventually, they roll these guys up. Um, wow. They get them, it takes hours to go tramping through the woods, send out the dogs, and catch all these guys and arrest them. Uh, there's been, you know, some of them are representing themselves. Most of them actually are representing themselves with all the usual cyber citizen nonsense. So, um, unfortunately, mass court records are a little hard to find online and uh so i don't know the exact status but they're still basically awaiting trial so they've been moldering in jail for a year especially so they, when they're especially when their responses are written in old english oh yeah exactly <laughs> and so you know it's the usual you know it's the usual nonsense and they're filing that you know nonsensical lawsuits and you know doing all the usual cyber citizen garbage um so so the, here's the funny thing about it while massachusetts has very strict gun laws it's actually not that hard to transport guns through the state of Massachusetts to Maine. All you have to do, which is, I believe, common. I'm, I'm not a gun owner. I don't follow this, but I did research this for this case. But uh, as, as I understand it, in order to legally transport guns through Massachusetts, they have to be registered according to the laws of the state that you live in. They have to be stored, unloaded in a locked case, and your ammunition has to be stored in a separate locked case. Period. End of story not a big deal so if these guys had applied any degree of common sense they would have done exactly that and they would be up doing their training stuff in maine and nobody would have known nobody would have cared uh and also for some reason they decided that they didn't want to go to gas stations so they carried their own fuel with them and they were decanting it from gas cans into their cars stupidly by the side of the road instead of pulling into a Walmart parking lot or something at three in the morning. Right. So they're, but they were just sitting there by the side of the road where, you know, as it happened, the cop saw them. So it's bizarre, the judgment, the chain of reasoning that would get you to think that being all tacked up in Massachusetts, we, you know, brandishing guns highly visibly by the side of the road and you know, filling up your gas, you know, for a made up task, right? Filling up your gas because you can't like pull into gas. And instead of just like, go to the gas station, keep your guns put away until you get to where you're going. You but, know, but see, you know. they're not subject to any of those laws, John, because they, because of the Barbary Coast pirates, right? Right. But it's like somewhere in the back of your mind, you got to think, you know, 
okay, licenses and register fake license plates and no insurance. That's one level of criminal behavior. And yeah, it's going to get your car towed and, you know, yeah, it'll probably be impounded, you know, it'll be impounded and it's going to be expensive because you're going to have to get insurance and you're going to have to fix a lot of stuff. And it's going to be a few grand, which maybe you can or can't afford. But, you know, if you've got the money to buy all of this weaponry and, you know, all that, you have to have in the back of your mind that even if you passionately believe all this sob sit nonsense, you know, that, that like something's got to go in the back of your mind saying, what if this heads sideways and I run into the cops, you know, some part of you knows that you're cosplaying and that this you, is a bad idea. You would idea. think that's true. You yeah. would think that's true. Cause you and I would certainly have those second questions, mm-hmm. doubts, I tell you, man, I, I know I, I don't know that that's true with some of these guys. And when we talk about extremist beliefs, you know, we use the word extremist for a reason. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, I think the the you know, what's interesting here, the obvious point here is that, you know, this is an example of, you know, a fairly standard set of sovereign beliefs turning into a, a potentially extremely violent group with a potentially extremely violent getting itself into potentially extremely violent situations. Yep. And, um, you know, it could have been an absolute unbelievable disaster if somebody had started, uh, you know, somebody had started shooting, whether it was the cops who shot first or these guys that shot first. This could have turned into an absolute horrendous tragedy. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, just... Well, especially if that line was true about go take up a sniper position. Yeah. And it's like, you know, that they're intending to do military shit to defend themselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's uh, that's a truly scary thing. And I think, you know, you have to look at this. Really, the key message of these guys is that the line, you know, and this is active violence. This is not the sort of banal threats of violence that the Queen of Canada's followers in issuing these cease and desist letters. These are people who actually have got hands on guns. Yep. You know, the little old ladies that are going to hair salons and threatening them with arrest for masking, um, you know, that's threatening violence, but they're but not it's, a, it's almost a laughable joke from a little it old lady. Almost, it is, yeah. but it's it's still scary that she would, you know, somebody who oh, would yeah. not, not normally think of, you know, life in prison for, you know, not wearing, you know, for wearing a mask would, would do that. But these guys are, you know, they're, they were this close to, you know, starting Armageddon. Yeah. Um, yeah, very and, much so. And 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 I think this is really, you know, the important thing is that the line between, you know, just being a bunch of anti-government whack jobs and being a massive terrorist threat is not that big. No, it's not. It's it's really a matter of tweaking the belief a little bit, revving up the paranoia a little bit, and throwing some guns into the mix. Yeah. Yeah, it's like there is not a big chasm that you have to cross Mm -mm. to get from sanity and civilization to insanity and anarchy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a it's a relatively smooth continuum, and that line is shifting. and And I think it's uh, I think that's a very very important lesson to take away from from these guys. And it's very fortunate uh, for their sake and the sake of a lot of innocent people that that didn't turn into a major conflagration. It very easily it wouldn't have taken much to to turn that into a massive shootout. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I do. I, I think your point is well taken and I do want to highlight it. I do actually want to reinforce it. Um, 
you know, there's a lot of laughing at, ridiculing, finger pointing at odd beliefs, bizarre groups, you know, strange ideas, ha ha, tt. But that danger factor is there with every single one of them. And it's not, I'm not saying that every single group is a, is a heaven's gate, you know, prototype, but I'm, but I'm saying that the possibility of going there, once you start going down mm -hmm. that spectrum of extremism, mm -hmm. th there isn't, there, there aren't breaks, you know, there's no stopping yep. you necessarily, unless the cult leader has some moral foundation or, you know, principle of nonviolence. You know, and that tends to be, for example, even though bizarrely, you know, Hubbard and Miscavige are, are the most violent people in Scientology, they, they don't really go in that direction because the dogma and the belief set is very pacifistic. Um, but you get a militia group together in tat gear with weapons, there's a hair breadth away from disaster and tragedy. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It really needs to be highlighted. You know, these are dangerous groups. We don't call them destructive cults for no reason. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, the, the thing is that as these groups evolve quickly, um, you know, you don't know who's coming in. There are some people, you mm -hmm. know, there's going to be some percentage of people that are just unhinged. That's Remember, right. we just said that one half of 1% or 1.6 to 1.7 million people are schizophrenic. So if you're a cult leader, one in 200, probably higher because it attracts such people, uh, one in 200 of the people that you that show up in person are, you know, potentially mentally ill. Now, I do not mean to say that all schizophrenics are dangerous. No, of course uh, not. You know, because many of them are properly medicated and able That's to live right. decent lives. That's right. But, you know, whether it's schizophrenia or other mental illness or just sociopathic tendencies, not organic brain issues, yep. you know, that, that, you know, there's a predilection towards, you know, that's right. People that are a little bit marginal. Uh, well, when you add on top of that marginalized rationality or ability to cognitively think through things or deal well with emotional ups and downs, however, it manifests when you add on top of that, see that kind of thing not easily managed, but we, but, but people have managed it with medications, with therapy, mm -hmm. et cetera. But you add on top of that, the layers of culty nonsense that goes on, you're asking for trouble. Yeah. And, you know, so you just, you know, this is, you know, it's, uh, there, there's phrases, stochastic terrorism, you know, that, mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, if you just put out these messages enough, eventually, you know, even though you don't directly order that particular individual to pick up a gun, you just put out messages that says we have to fight to take our country back or we have to fight for our belief system or whatever. Eventually, somebody is going to do it if you right. get enough followers. It's just the math. And exactly. so, um, you know, that's that's a that's a real problem. And, and if you rationalize this sort of thing, I mean, let's take a look, for example, quickly at Comet Ping Pong Pizza Parlor, D.C., one of those QAnon guys went marching in there, armed to the teeth, ready to free those kids. So you put a good spin on a bunch of lies as to why you need to be armed up, why you need to go engage in violence. People will do it. Yeah. People will do it just like that. It's, it's not even like, it's no rocket science. Uh, you know, this is, this is what propaganda and, and cult indoctrination is all about. Yeah. So um, exactly. So, I, you know, so let's let's sort of start heading for home here and let's yeah. start to look across all of what we've talked about so far. And let's start to pull together some 
you know, some key threads of what's going on. And so, you know, we started off talking about um, how the internet is really enabling a different, different kind of group. Yeah. And, and so these aren't businesses the way that older cults, um, you know, That's right. uh, the way that older cults have been. And the fact that they're not businesses means that their lifespan is likely to be fairly limited. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean they will cause less harm because I think that, you know, it's a quick money grab by reflex. It's not a plan that these cult leaders have. Um, and, and so the, the result is they're going to grab as much cash as they can. Um, and they're, you know, going to implode. They may not end up with a lot of money by the time all is said and done, because they're not doing accounting. They're not thinking strategically about investing that money to get the best return. They're not thinking like business people, yep. but they're getting this money thrown at them by these followers. And, you know, they're spending it on, you know, in the case of Crossman hotels for everybody as he transports them around. Uh, to all these Trump rallies, or in the case of Queen Romana, they're paying for her RV and her tour of her dominion, um, you know, et cetera. Um, but, but, um, so these are not businesses, you know. Yeah, they, we can, we they can know almost call them cults of opportunity. That's a great term. I like that a lot. That's yeah. really, yeah, exactly. That all of a sudden you get these followers and you realize they'll do what they, what you say. And now that we're able to start meeting in person, that you can have these followers that are going to give you money and you're going to lead them in real life. Yep. And so, yeah, there's some money there. And, and so, you know, but what happens in order to keep your followers is that you have to keep adding doctrine. And so mm -hmm. it really inverts the paradigm of, you know, if you look at any of the old groups, they had doctrine first, and then that was the product that they sold to follow. It's a very That's conventional right. model, like a business. Here, you get these followers, and all of a sudden, you realize that they really follow you, and now you got to have some doctrine. And so maybe you had one shtick, like Protzman with uh, the numerology, um, or Queen of Canada with the COVID, and as that shtick wears out, uh, to keep the momentum going, you have to add more stuff, and you, you're in a mad scramble to come up with doctrine and to just grab it from as many places as possible, just grab as much stuff in as you can to differentiate yourself from the other, um, you know, to, to right. differentiate yourself from the people's front of Judea. And, um, you That's know, right. and so there's, so there's, it's a real inversion of the paradigm. Um, and as point. I say, these, you know, these people are gonna, you know, there, there's gonna be an initial flood of money as they sort of come to prominence, but as they fade other, groups come to more prominence, they'll start running out of money, they'll start getting more strident because the money's drying up, you know, the game's going to be over. That's right. That's you know, right. And, and so I think I, that's when they become dangerous. That's right. I'll, I'll connect this a little bit, this, this cult of opportunity concept, to, okay. to the origins of Scientology different from Dianetics, which is exactly the business model you suggested, the product and then people follow. But it all fell apart. And Hubbard, in desperation, pulled out Scientology and spirituality. Mm -hmm. And through drugs and various other things, got people having wild experiences, coming up with dogma on the fly, mm -hmm. coming up with the whole spiritual background of, of Thetans and the whole track and, the, and you know, the, 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 the crazy... You know, uh, the, 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 the clam, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, most of that came out of drug-fueled fantasies, you know, mm -hmm. which was which was Hubbard desperately creating on that in order to pers preserve this 
this follower thing and the money, keep the money coming yeah. in, you know, and yeah. it really did evolve that way. The, 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 um, the, the talent Hubbard had was that he could write really fast yep. and he could bring in ideas and, and conglomerate them quickly mm-hmm. and put it out as though he had just had this discovery or epiphany or research model, which never existed. There was never any research. It, that wasn't sure. what it was about at all. But he put out a false front that there was and people bought into it and, and, and the history kind of wrote itself. And so, so we do see some of that even in Scientology's history. And it was followed very quickly with people who came on board, namely Hubbard's wife, Mary Sue, his third and final wife, and some other people who did have some organizational sense. And after tanking Dianetics twice, for whatever reason, Hubbard had a good enough sense to let them take care of organizational stuff enough that it actually organized itself into a mm-hmm. movement. Yeah. I would, I would almost argue, you know, since I'm very familiar with the software industry, I would almost argue that Scientology follows the evolution of software companies. Mm. So I would say that uh, in some respects, Dianetics was a first stab at the market, but it was not what they call these days minimum viable product. Mm. So it didn't have enough value to support an organization. There were all these informal Dianetics groups, but it wasn't enough for him to get paid. And... Fair enough. The, the additional layer being Hubbard kept taking the money, so it never was allowed to become viable, too. Sure, that's yeah. that's that's fair. Yeah. But but you know, from a product, you know, thinking in terms of a product, you yeah. say, okay, so he got so he got singed pretty badly on that, and yeah. so I think what he realized is that if you had material that would bring people in for in person something that you you know essentially the book became a commercial for another thing right. rather than the book being sufficient by itself. Yep. And that was the version 2.0 is where we got to a real minimum viable product That's instead right. of, you know, and so, you know, we talk about in investing in software companies, is this company, is this company a feature of a larger product? Is it a product or is it really a company that has aftermarket sales, service support, and a whole bunch of things to really keep the customer attracted. And that was a big thing in the internet bubble when I got started in the capitalism business, um, that you had all these companies coming public, but the product really wasn't a product. It was really destined to be a feature that was incorporated into a larger product. Mm. And so there was a lot of this that you had to wrestle with. And so, you know, we, I've spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, does this company have a real minimum viable product? And sometimes I've been spectacularly wrong. So, you know, there's been some pain along the way to, to, to understanding that. But, but you know, these guys, this new generation doesn't really think about that because they no. just have to get something to talk about when they interact with their followers every day. And, right. you know, to keep the money coming in. And um, I'll say QAnon origins are exactly that too. Yeah, and, yeah. and now, you know, it was like people just, and that's why you're splintering because there wasn't any money to be made in the original, you know, just wanking on social media about analyzing this just gibberish. Right. Um, and so you had to take QAnon, which gave you an audience, and then you had to add your own stuff to it to really start to, to make some money. That's and, right. And you know, I, don't think it's, I don't think on, on that line of logic that it's any accident that Prosman was an, a QAnon influencer. He was one of those breadcrumb guys who it's like interpreter and let's yeah. go. And that's how they monetize that model. Right. It's to, it's to splinter off. Yeah. Um, because, you know, you're a commodity if you're just an influencer, if you've got an audience. But the only way to monetize it is to have your own 
thing because exactly. then you can control your followers. Otherwise, your followers are fungible. If you're selling the same belief set as somebody else, they can, you know, it's like, you know, it's a commodity. That's right. It's like going, you know, you, you know, McDonald's sells the same product everywhere in the U.S. So you walk in and a quarter pounder in, in Dubuque is the same as a quarter pounder in Manhattan. That's and, right. You know, and, yeah. and that's a commodity. I mean, essentially within McDonald's, it doesn't matter where you buy it. And, and so you have to differentiate yourself. That's right. Um, yeah. And Prosman, for example, the negative 48 guy, he differentiated himself by starting to talk about JFK and Trump and JFK Jr. Yep. and the Dallas thing. And that's how he became his own thing. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so, you know, differentiation is, is really important and you have to keep piling the doctrine on, or you're going to lose your followers even faster than right. normal, um, you know, brief lifespan of these groups. That's right. Um, the other thing, um, you know, I think that this major trend here that certainly, you know, the, the rise of the Moors really isn't an example of this, but is uh, incorporation of new age stuff mm. um, to broaden the appeal and really depoliticize it because politically you're so polarized. You know, there are so many um, Trump related or pro-Trump or pro-right uh, right wing groups that that market's tapped out and you're never going to get a uh, Biden fan to join your pro-Trump group. That's and right. so, you know, at some point you're going to start running up against, uh, you know, that, that that limits the address of the market. So the new age stuff, you know, and, I, and I, again, I don't think people are, are consciously making this decision the way that I would as a, you know, somebody who thinks about corporate strategy a lot. Um, they're just intuitively knowing that, you know, the, the Trump election stolen anger is dissipating because it's pretty hard to think, especially if you're thinking that Trump's going to run again, it's pretty hard to think that Trump's still the president. Right. And, right. and so you've got to get out of that. And I think that's, uh, uh, that's happening. Um, and, you know, this is, you know, and, and, and I think this is more, you know, magical thinking, you know, when you start to get into the, the, the new age stuff, than it is about trying to find these little random data points that, you know, have been shown to be ludicrous about, you know, uh, Chinese bamboo fibers in the paper ballots in Arizona or whatever the nonsense is that people have been pushing. You know, uh, by the way, I don't know if you noticed that uh, the last day or two, the Secretary of State in Arizona said there was one ballot that was invalid, a dead person who voted out of, you know, the, the initial assertion of hundreds of thousands of dead people who right. voted. After two years, they finally found one person in the entire state of Arizona. Well, you that know that, that, that somebody voted for them. It's worth noting or mentioning, I suppose, because it's frustrating for people like us that you know it, it takes ten seconds to say anything you want, make any goddamn stupid ass claim you want, and it takes ten mm -hmm. months to two years to disprove it. Yeah, it, it's just, it's frustrating. It's teeth gnashingly frustrating to see this and. We see this with the Sandy Hook case. You know, it's taken years for Alex Jones to finally see some, for these families to finally see some justice against this lying scumbag, you know? And, mm -hmm. and same here with the Arizona ballots. It's like all these people can say whatever they want. Well, it takes months to investigate, dig into all the details and prove. And then you do all that work and none of those people care because they don't, that's not why they believe it. They believe it because they have to believe it. Yeah. You know, so it's yeah. really, it's very frustrating. Yeah. So, um, so I think that, yeah, I, I just, okay. So let's, let me, let me just, I just, I'm sorry, I just lost the segue here, but, um, but I think, you know, that the other thing 
another question to think about is that you know you have this group uh, you know doctrine that's evolving very quickly. The groups themselves are evolving, fragmenting, splintering. You know, it's all a big soup. Um, so one interesting question is. Are these groups going to take away from groups like Scientology, or is this a parallel universe? And, you know, I, in thinking about it, um, the initial reaction, you know, given that there's some evidence that, um, that some of these groups, uh, particularly QAnon, are actually taking away from evangelical church attendance, mm -hmm. there's some potential, you know, tendency to say yes. And the answer is, I think not. I think that there's still going to be an appeal for this structured, corporate, tangible real estate presence in-person group. Yeah. Um, that there's there's going to be some category, and I, I don't have, I don't think I could say now, right right now, without doing some, you know, uh, you know, thinking about this or research on this. Um, I don't think I could say, well, what are the distinguishing characteristics? Somebody would go for an old school group versus what would be going for a new new group. Um, but I think it's, um, I, you know, I, I don't see that the, I certainly don't see the rise of the Moors uh, poaching people out of Scientology because no. Scientology is pretty white and the rise of the Moors aren't. Um, I don't actually see them poaching people out of the Nation of Islam, which might be a little bit more relevant example. Um, True. You know, um, those groups have had typically very, you know, the, the, the older groups now have very long time, very committed members. That's and fine. we are not expanding you know membership so i don't think they're going to you know people are not going to sit there and go gosh auditing doesn't work for me i think i'm now going to try crossman's numerology because i right. believe that jfk reincarnated so That's these right. are very separate uh worlds um so I, I i don't think that that's something that we need to see um but i think the the other question and i think you know we've we've we actually sort of managed to talk about a lot of the concluding and the common points mm -hmm. in the discussions of the individual groups but I think one other uh, interesting discussion is to say, how do these groups end? And, mm. and is that different now? And, you know, we talked uh, when we did the Scientology thing a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that it's pretty hard to kill a group like Scientology. Mm -hmm. And, mm. you know, I think what's interesting and is perhaps a reason for hope is that we can actually kill groups like uh, some of these guys um, perhaps a little faster than we have in the past. And you made the point earlier that, you know, these guys are not churches and therefore, mm -hmm. you know, are not going to be treated with kid gloves. Right. Um, the biggest thing, you know, and as we, when we talked about the chase wave, you know, debanking these guys, I think is a very fast way to go to, go to the jugular. Yep. Um, and, you know, there are all kinds of provisions, you know, I think, um, um, you know, well, to back up for a second, and we commented on this, maybe not in uh, a couple of weeks ago, but we talked, I think, with the sovereign citizen, or we talked about, in one of the podcasts, we talked about uh, the Patriot Act, which was passed uh, very shortly after 9-11. Mm -hmm. um, and it essentially began the process of wiping out bank secrecy and of highly regulating any sort of money transfer business. Yep. So Venmo uh, looks like a casual money transfer business, but it's actually quite highly regulated. Mm -hmm. uh, funds are very traceable, and there are all kinds of anti-fraud laws that apply to your ability to use Venmo. So if the government wants to shut down Crossman or Queen Romana or whatever, and I, I, I don't know how the, this works in Canada, it 
you know, it works likely fairly similar, but I don't know the authorities' willingness to pull this trigger. Um, I think the U.S. is far more willing to, to pull this trigger than, than others. Um, we have the most practice at, at this. But, um, you know, if you debank Krotzman because the money is falling into his checking account um, and then follow up with a fraud investigation, you know, that he's been stealing people's money or that this is hot money or try to exercise a clawback provision from somebody who is, you know, now, you know, like these people who are donating huge amounts of the family assets to him, uh, you start, you know, lawsuits that are trying to claw some of that back. Um, the, the the payment networks are going to shut them down even before the courts uh, criminally are going to uh, shut them down. That's and nice. so when they stop having the access to this money that's flowing in, uh, these things are going to go under fairly quickly. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean that people are suddenly going to wake up and say, oh, I guess I was wrong. This Protsman guy, now that he's not paying my hotel for me to follow him around, grovel at his feet and go to Trump rallies any longer, maybe he was wrong about everything and I'm all better now and I'm going to try to go back and make amends to my family. No, not going to happen. So you're still going to have followers that are a real mess when their guru gets rolled up. Yeah. But in terms of, you know, their vulnerability, you know, they don't have an infrastructure. They don't have a legal department. They don't have an OSA dirty tricks squad. Uh, they don't have private investigators hassling enemies. Um, That's right. They don't have any of the infrastructure that the established type of group has had for a long time and knows how to wield. Um, and right. so, and know, frankly, the people running these outfits are just not savvy enough or informed enough to be able to think their way through that kind of organizational structure. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. You know, Queen Romana, I think, because I believe she's clinically mentally ill. Uh, the Queen of Canada is just not going to be capable of doing anything other than taking uh, Venmo or GoFundMe, or I, I think she's been deplatformed from GoFundMe and some others. Uh, but, um, you know, th that uh, she's just putting money into a personal checking account or, you know, a trusted follower is collecting the money. And, and you know, there's, there's really very little other than what's the cash balance today that's guiding the financial decisions. Yeah. So if you attack them, if you go for the jugular and debank them so that they can't, followers can't move money to her or to any of them, it falls apart fairly quickly. Yeah. <clears throat> the, yeah. um, you know, with the, uh, um, you know, with the, the rise of the Moors, uh, it, it's a little more difficult, but, you know, the FBI has shown a reasonable ability to infiltrate a number of these militia groups. It takes them a while, but, you know, like the Oath Keepers, um, seems to, uh, you know, the leadership seems to be getting decapitated in the wake of the January 6th, you know, assault on the Capitol. Yeah. And so this was a fairly sophisticated militia group and the feds managed to, uh, uh, you know, have some fairly high, uh, uh, high level leaders that turned out to be collaborators, mm. and, you know, and informants. So, you know, they have been, you know, reasonably capable of rolling these folks up. The smaller militias, may not be as high on the radar scope and they still have the potential for violence. So while the, the rise of the Moors were probably known to the Providence police, um, they weren't necessarily known to the Massachusetts police. Um, and, you know, but I think that there's going to be emphasis on catching these groups um, when they're still, you know, fairly small. Yeah, um, exactly. Well, like we and, saw here in Colorado, you know, one or two instances of police run-ins and it's not necessarily noted 
couple more, though, pretty soon the entire state knows about these people, mm -hmm. you know, yes. and they're on the lookout for them. And then the justice system, you know, the judges, especially when they were attacking judges directly, you know, that layer finds out about it. And at that point, they're getting short shrift no matter where they go. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. you know, I think there's there's a lot more, um, you know, especially in the wake of 9-11, the Patriot Act, there's a lot more national um, and local cooperation. So mm -hmm. the fact that case files uh, will be able to go national so that, you know, if if you have the rise of the Moors um, in Providence that are, you know, flagged as a suspicious and potentially dangerous group, and then they all decide that they're going to move to Alabama, um, the Alabama police are going to, you know, be able to tap in and, you know, they, they run the prints on these guys. There'll be, you know, there's, there's a lot more, you know, national clearinghouse level stuff going on. Right. So uh, even, you know, even some of these smaller militia groups, I think are going to get more up on the radar screen and they'll get tamped down uh, a little faster. And, yeah. you know, I think that there's, I think that there's some, uh, I, I, you know, I think that the ability of the government to quickly and efficiently take out the leadership of a group that that starts to become a real danger, I think is quite high. The problem is that of scale. Um, and while these guys leave lots of footprints on uh, instant messaging that are, you know, have great evidentiary value, right? Like all these sovereign citizens, as, as we pointed out, who videotape their own traffic stops, um, you know, which turn out to be great evidence used against them, um, you know, or all the January 6th people who are like, Hey, I'm standing on Nancy Pelosi. You know, I, right. I just peed on I just peed on Nancy Pelosi's desk. Damn, we're you know taking the Capitol back, and then they post it on Facebook, right? That you know, but it's just it just, it becomes a problem of scale, right? Right. That to win uh, a conviction in you know federal court for you know for some you know, for a federal crime, it's not trivial. They really prepare for trials, and uh, you know this can. You know, it's a it's a scale problem. Even though the government has the money, they don't necessarily have enough trained people to go after and shut down all of these groups that are emerging. Right. Exactly. How interesting. Yeah, it's uh it's a it's a very different world than the world of you know Scientology, which is a large and entrenched fixed target. Yep. These are, you know, essentially like you know, roving motorcycle gangs that pop up in random locations That's right. and then move on. That's right. Yeah, because one of the factors with Scientology, of course, and a lot of these other more permanent groups is the real estate holdings. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, they got property all over the place. These guys don't. You know, yeah. Nexium didn't. Yeah, well, you know, Queen Romana at this point is probably homeless. She's probably living in that RV and is right. out of her former residence in Victoria, B.C. Um, exactly. It's certainly the case that you know, Prosman is is homeless and in researching for this uh, thing, you know, he was uh, thrown out of the house by his wife. The house was either sold or foreclosed or something. So I don't think he has certainly has a home to go back to. Mm. And mm. and so, you know, there's a uh, there was an attempt at the uh, replicating the Canadian truckers convoy um, in the U.S. Um, earlier oh, yeah. this year. And that really fizzled pretty ridiculously with a lot more. Um, you know, they they raised, interestingly, Lee Dundas, a Scientologist attorney, was one of the early uh, organizers of that. And uh, uh, she managed to raise like a million six or a million eight. Um, 
and nobody seems to quite know what happened to it. And she's been lying low for a while, so it's not clear that uh, all that money got channeled to the uh, truckers and the you know to pay for fuel and whatnot. Uh, but uh, that group quickly devolved, um, you know, by the time they reached Washington, and then it finally fell apart. And but there are still a couple of dozen diehards that are. Uh, occupying a small slice of land on the National Mall, protesting. They can't really tell you what they're protesting. They're sort of just protesting and they're, you know, trying to, quote, restore the Republic of 1776 and impose morality while they're busy being homeless, um, breaking lots of small ordinances, committing adultery, um, threatening people and not being exactly moral. Um, you know, and they're all homeless, basically. Uh, at this point, um, mm -hmm. and the only thing that keeps them from living in, you know, in a van down by the river is the donations that are flowing in. Right. Wow. You know, so it's wow. uh, it's a it's a pretty shitty life being one of these uh, you know these cult followers. I think at this point. Yeah. Well, I you know I, I I again not big on predictions, not trying to be, but I but I will say that you know when desperate times bring out desperate people. And um, and if people perceive these times as desperate, well, I, I think there's some truth to that. Um, but people can take it too far. People can obviously go beyond. And once they start not trusting the social system that they live in and, and putting their faith and their work and their energy into maintaining and keeping those social structures so we're all kind of on the same page, once they give up on that and decide the whole thing needs to be torn down, then they start taking on, you know, they start doing crazy stuff. And that's and I and, and I think it's fairly predictable that we're going to see more of that rather than less in the immediate future. Absolutely. You know, yeah. it's, uh, you know, for so many reasons, the next five years are going to be, I think, um, one of the toughest periods in our lives. Yeah. Um, you know, what's driving the inflation and, you know, I I. This is sort of veering off topic, sure. um, but you know what's driving inflation is fundamentally a uh, withdrawal or a, 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 a collapse of the globalization that's been in place since the end of World War II, mm. um, and and basically the United States became the guarantor of free trade globally for everybody um, as long as you opposed the Soviet Union, mm. and so we we bought, you know I think one way to think of it is we we by putting our money behind everybody's free trade, we benefited massively from it. And the you know economic expansion over the last 75 years has been unprecedented in history for us and for everybody else. Mm -hmm. um, the rise of China was very much enabled by this. But mm. with the end of the Cold War, and now particularly with the revelation that the Russian military is a bad joke, you know, given what's going on in Ukraine, um, and with the likelihood that that's not just you know a temporary lull of training, but a systemic rot that makes the Russians, other than their nuclear weapons, completely irrelevant in the world stage, there's no need to have that system. And we've been you know essentially reducing uh, reducing it. So there's going to be a lot of changes to trade dynamics. And mm. while uh, you know some of the sources that I've been looking at are suggesting the U.S. is you know, North America, actually, not just the U.S., but Mexico and Canada, um, as an integrated trade bloc, is very well positioned to weather the future. We have stable or growing population. Uh, and if we accelerate integration, 
uh, and make our country welcoming to immigrants. Once again, we will continue to attract and have population growth. Most places other than Africa are seeing population drops, um, which is also going to be very bad for, for the economy and it's going to cause some wars. You know, so, so one of the reasons potentially that uh, Putin has gone into Ukraine is the Russian population is collapsing. The under 30 uh, demographic is really dramatically below the number of people that are aging out. Life expectancy continues to drop for a whole variety of reasons. Um, Russia is going to be half of what it was in another 40 years. So he's not wow. going to have enough of an army to be a, a factor. He's not going to have enough skilled workers to, to prop up even the natural resource economy that he has. So Russia's in trouble. China is actually also going to see a dramatic population drop. Some experts now think it's going to drop by half in 40 years. That's way ahead of the wow. predictions of over an, even a decade ago. The previous estimate was it was going to drop by half by 2100. So in 80 years, now it's going to drop by half. Um, people are just not having kids. And uh, and it's, at this point, relatively irreversible. Wow. So, um, wow. so that's going to be, again, you know, a major geopolitical catalyst. Um, you know, some countries in Asia are going to do okay. Vietnam, I think. Um, you're going to see India um, has some choices to make, but I think their population is still somewhat stable. Um, and I think they have, you know, pretty good choices. Uh, Argent, you know, there's uh, Australia, Argentina, several others. Japan's going to do well. Um, Japan's actually going to be more activist uh, militarily in the in in Asia. Hmm. Continue to partner with the U.S. Uh, to contain China. Um, but all of this is massive realignment from the way the world has worked for the last eighty years. Yeah, and 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 a lot of this stuff is going to happen very quickly. You're going to see a lot of changes in oil distribution. So likely gas prices and oil prices will remain high. You'll see some challenges in technology. Um, you know, moving semiconductor production back to the U.S. is going to be absolutely a screamingly important priority. I was glad to see that legislation to support that was passed, uh, to my surprise, quite easily. Um, That's good. But there's some massive realignments. Um, people are going to be moving business out of China. Uh, aggressively more so than before COVID, um, which is going to exacerbate the economic situation in China. It's going to get ugly out there. Yeah. And, you know, while we are ultimately going to be okay, it's going to be very scary. And then you add climate change on top of this, and we were talking about earlier. Um, we are, we are going to have, and not in a good way, the most memorable five years of our lives. Wow. Um, and, and it's uh, ultimately going to be okay, but it's going to be really tough getting there. There will be a new equilibrium, and I think we're going to be okay. Okay. But, but it's just going to be tough. And so that that's wow. really fertile breeding ground. Um, you know, it's really fertile breeding ground for um, you know a lot of this, a lot of these groups, and especially among the aged, right? That uh, you know, people that are sixty and up. Uh, especially less educated, um, you know, the risks to social security from people, not the system going bankrupt, but people just saying, we're tired of doing this, no more Medicare, no more social security. That's a big, you know, uh, that's been, I think, popping up in the news again. Uh, lately, hasn't it's been quiet for a while, um, you know, putting literally starving our senior citizens. So, you know, that's going to be a very right, you know, the, the, the stereotype of the Recruiting table on a college campus, pulling people into cults. Nope, it's going to be little old ladies on uh, social media that All are scared right. about their social security. Um, 
and wow. you know it's uh so i think there's it, it, it's going to be very stressful that's you know i as we were all saying at the beginning of covid you know uh it was becoming more and more real to some of us may you live in interesting times yes indeed well yes, these indeed. are these are some of the most interesting i suppose yeah no it's been unusually calm for the last 30 years i think mm. Mm. You know, and uh, okay. the last 40 certainly the last 40 but you know it's been unusually calm and uh um you know and so we need to really be on guard you know we we need to stop this polarity and isolation and everybody right. first we can exactly. meet these challenges um but but we're gonna have to uh you know as the voice of reason and calm and taking a long view uh and of science and uh and and intellect we're gonna there's a lot of work ahead of us for people exactly like us. exactly uh, I, I and on that note thank you john thank you very much for that breakdown because um because you know, I'm, I'm. I, this is not doom and gloom, and that's not that's not where we're trying to go with this messaging at all. It's the fact of a proper assessment of the situation is required if we're going to navigate it successfully. Yeah, and you know, I mean, you I know. think I, I think to to come back to the message of hope, and this is something we talked about. Um, I think in the uh, the last podcast is that you know after World War One, particularly, you know, World War Two was horrific and the damage wrought the number of people died you yeah. know the you know the tens of millions of people in russia alone and plus you know uh, genocide of the jews and mm -hmm. all of the other war casualties uh it was horrific but it was like here we go again but world war one was unprecedented 100 years ago right and and the scale of slaughter destruction the sheer stupidity of how it got started yeah all of that you know, from a continent that was legendary for wars, right? I was reading something uh, the, in preparation for this tonight about the uh, uh, various Napoleonic wars and just the, the, you know, the sheer viciousness of just constantly war after war after war, you know, and relatively in Napoleon's short reign, he was at war all the time. Yep. Against everybody. Yeah. And, you know, the number of just the, the damage and destruction, but World War One was really singular in terms of, technology being employed at the level that it was for the first time. Yeah. And, you know, you understand why the Jehovah's Witnesses went out big saying 1918 is the end of the world. Yep. Because it sure looked like it. That's right. And yet, you know, if you look at what what's happened to the world in terms of life expectancy, quality of life, economic activity, um, any conceivable measure, the world today as challenged as we are today with all of the things that are going on, climate change and everything else, we're in so much better shape. It's inconceivable how much better life is. You know, there's really nobody alive today from 1918 who was an adult then, essentially, who can provide direct testimony, but we can figure out pretty well that life is still pretty damn good today. Mm -hmm. And and we rebounded in a reasonably short period of time from World War from World War One, especially outside of Germany, you know, they mm -hmm. were still kind of reeling, which is why we had World War Two. And the UK, which was hit so hard. Yeah. yeah. And 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 so, but 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 still the rebound, both after World War One and World War Two, you know, we now know that the best days of humanity lay ahead of this absolutely apocalyptic wasteland that we saw in Europe at the end of World War One. 
Mm. And so, you know, I think, you know, we're obviously living in the present and this is what we know. And, you know, that's an intellectual exercise to look at World War One. But but now, you know, we look at this and it's absolutely, as I as I said before, I'm pretty calm about such things. And I'm stressed by all of the stuff I'm doing at work. Right. You know, that I shared a little bit of uh, just now. Right. And and that's not usual for me. It, it's eaten away at me all the time. And, and you know, I can take some comfort when I can stop long enough and remind myself of the World War One analogy, but it's still not enough. It's still, you know, then, then something else happens. And then I'm like, shit, what else? I know, because the, cause predictions are a dime a dozen, and all we can do is the best we can do with the data. But we know that historically the cycles are, you know, quality of life, health, longevity, all of it. They are rising statistics and even in the face of all the disastrous whatever that we were that we're facing right now our man-made climate change i think top of the list yeah um you know we've got real problems and challenges ahead of us they're real and they are then they're in our face right now and and you know and and just to to kind of conclude this i suppose you know is is i am an optimist and i and i am Mm -hmm. going to continue to be that 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 is what i need to be and and I'm going, and I and I think your World War One comparative is 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 useful because while because it's not you know it wouldn't necessarily be really comforting to somebody who lived in, in 1905, right? To, yeah. to know this disaster is looming, right? But that there is a brighter side, maybe on the other end of it after you know the disaster. Maybe that's the situation we're in now, where we know we've got tough times ahead. But you know, very few people are really talking about well, what about that, and what happens after that? I mean, because the fact of the matter is, we're barely preparing for what's coming. So yeah. there's a lot of work ahead of us still, and I think you're absolutely mm-hmm. right in that. From my perspective, what I want to end this show on is, I want to say to my audience who who is here for, you know, the culty sociological psychology end of this at least that's my perspective on this stuff, is I want you guys to keep your, you know, go into this future knowing things are tough, but keep your eyes open and keep mm-hmm. the and keep those frontal lobes engaged because there are going to be cults of opportunity popping up and cults of personality popping up all over the place. During times and, of stress and conflict, that's what happens. Yep, and keep your eyes open for you and to inoculate those you love. That's right. And the exactly. earlier you see it and the earlier you can inoculate them, the, the safer they, they're going to be. That's right. Um, and, you know, I think, uh, you know, this, this cultic stuff does go in phases. You know, if we go back to the 70s, you know, people do, for the most part, eventually come to their senses. Yep. In the 70s, we thought leisure suits, platform shoes... <laughs> And disco was a good were good ideas. Right. And you know, fortunately, we did come to our senses. You know, people I, those people who have kept leisure suits in their in their closets for fifty years just in case they come back have been disappointed. That's and I right. think humanity is better off for that. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And, and so you know, uh, people, as I say, sanity for most people will eventually return. Unfortunately, it's a question of how much damage. Um, you know that uh, can be done in the, you know, in the meantime. You know, leisure suits are only reputational damage, fortunately. That's right. That's right. Well, John, again, thank you very much for your time and consideration on all of this and the work that you did researching it. I really appreciate it. And it was, I, th- I think we've, I think we've really done a bit of a, of a show here. I think this is pretty good. 
Well, thanks. I, uh, I realize it's probably gone on for uh, maybe this may be a record for one of your shows, but uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't even know what time it is, but uh, um, you know, I, I absolutely, one of my favorite things to do with when I do podcasts is to do them with you. So uh, well, because you. it always, we always tend to play off each other fairly well. So um, you know, if you come up with any ideas or if the commenters uh, down below come up with any ideas that, uh, you know, it, people know me enough to, to know kind of how I think of things. And if there's an idea for something related to cults or um, non-reality or, uh, you know, whatever it is that's within your, your wheelhouse yep. that you think I could uh, take a look at from my perspective, um, you know, please put in the comments. I'll continue to read the comments and, you know, Chris will, and, and we'll see if we can uh, come up with something else fun to talk about. You bet. Absolutely. All right, folks. So you heard him put put it in the comments. If you got uh, feedback, if you have things to say about this, good, bad, or sideways, I really, I'm very interested in, in what y'all think about what we talked about today. So on that happy note, I will also say, please do support the show because, you know, you guys are the ones keeping me on air. You guys are the ones who are absolutely keeping me in a job. So I will encourage you to please continue doing so via Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, whatever, all the links are in the show notes or the description section below here. So thank you very much for coming around and listening to us, Gabaron, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody, for being generous with your time. Thank you.